simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast. I'm here with my future co-defendants, TK <laughs> Coleman and Ryan Nicodemus. <laughs> What's up, patrons? Thanks for your support. Today, we're going to talk about political clutter. Oh, and answer a bunch of really wild questions. Mm. We got a more about less article, but we did tease something on the yes. public podcast. So TK asked you to tell a story about your grandma. You said you <laughs> wanted to save it. What yeah. is that story? Ryan? Okay, so uh, yeah, uh, during the lightning round, you know, we talk about how you can send your questions, comments, smart remarks, and then I threw in concerns. And this reminded TK of a story I just told him. So my grandma had a concern where uh, I was talking to her on the phone and she was like, hey, I just want to let you know, I saw a video the other day uh, and you were talking about how you own nothing. <laughs> and I know for a fact that you don't own nothing. And I just wanted to let you know that if people see that, you could come across as really hypocritical. <laughs> and at first, I'm like, I have no idea what she's talking about. I'm like, Grams, I have never claimed that I own nothing. And she was like, there's a video. It's on your website, like going on and on. And finally, I'm like, I was like, did it involve a yoga mat? And she was like, yeah, it's the one with the yoga mat. And I'm like, oh, you mean the joke that we did about me owning nothing? It was a house tour. Yeah, it was a house tour. And I was like, oh, I didn't own anything. We're, she was like, yeah, you're sitting playing an imaginary piano. <laughs> you're sitting on an imaginary couch watching an imaginary TV. I know that you don't do those things. And I'm like, I'm like, Grams, it was a joke. She was like, well, you didn't say that at the end of the video. I'm like, what What did you want me to sh say? She's like, well, you should have said something like, now, you know, oftentimes minimalism can be construed that you own nothing. And in fact, this is not minimalism and it's okay to own. And I'm like, I'm like, grandma, if I would have said that at the end of the video, would you have laughed? She was like, well, no. I'm like, okay, then there's no reason for me to say that. And if I have to explain a joke, then it's not funny. <laughs> My favorite part of Dave Chappelle's last special was at the very end when he said, all right, guys. And that was all the big joke. <laughs> the end. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, something you have to say nowadays. I, well, I, the funny thing is, that's actually the perfect story to start this episode, because we're going to be talking about some touchy subjects that we don't talk about in public. So we're going to keep this between mm. us patrons. Mm -hmm. And um, what I like about this, TK, is our patrons give us the leeway to talk about some things and to have different opinions, to have different viewpoints, mm -hmm. yeah. to have a different understanding, sometimes a lesser understanding to change our understanding in real time. So like the stand-up comedian who's trying out some new bits or new ideas on stage, this is our little stage where we can talk about some things, mm -hmm. but we can also talk about some things that are personal to us. I do want to be careful though, because some of these questions here, they are contentious questions. Like, what do you guys think about the war in Ukraine? Or what do you mm. think about you know, who'd you vote for in the last election? And I would get back to another question behind any of these questions. How will our answers or our discussion of these questions help people heal? Well, I want to judge you based upon the answer. How will I, it help people heal? I need to know how to judge you. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so it, when we're constantly seeking approval, that's one of the problems that we have here is, oh, I need to know what he thinks about the war in Ukraine. Right. Because if he thinks the same way as me, then I approve of him until the next thing that I disagree with him about. And now all of a sudden I yeah. disapprove of you. It's, and it's almost like uh, someone who says something like, oh, I can't stand people who have pineapple on pizza, who like pineapple on pizza. 
It's like, you're going to really like that's your litmus test for whether or not you like someone. <laughs> First off, pineapple on pizza is amazing. <laughs> I can't believe you. <laughs> we're going to do this right now. <laughs> I thought we were going to save the most contentious <laughs> aspect for the end of the episode. Oh, man. But but it's silly. It's a preference thing. It's like, how are you going to like judge someone based upon their preferences? Like preferences make the world go round. Right. If we all like the same things, then it'd be a pretty boring place. Amen. I want to start, TK, with um, probably the heaviest political question. That's the best place to start. Who is on your Mount Rushmore of Mike's? <laughs> so we have like Mike, like as Biggie would say, Tyson, Jordan, Jackson, uh, anyone. Yeah. Like yeah. Those Mike's. Right. But is it Michael B. Jordan or just the basketball player? Oh, both. Oh, <laughs> I, I mean, Michael Jordan, number one, for sure, because he's just the GOAT. There's no number one. First. There's four people on Mount Rushmore. Okay. Mm. I mean, but he's the first person I'm going with, right? Right. So so you've named, so we have Jordan. You said Tyson, Jackson. I think unanimously, most people are going to put those three mics. So who is, who's the fourth mic on the Mount Rushmore of mics? Is it Jay Fox? I'm going with Michael Humer. Michael Humer, who is the author of a book called The Problem of Political Authority. And he is a brilliant thinker, a brilliant philosopher. And he analyzes the concept of authority, since we're talking about politics, which is something that we aren't taught to do a lot of thinking about. If I were to survey people and say, hey, what does the word authority mean to you? Everyone will have an assumed definition. Everyone will have a concept mm -hmm. of authority that they've inherited from society, and they'll give me whatever their dictionary-sounding definition of it is. Michael Humer says, let's analyze this concept thoroughly. What does it meant throughout history? What does it mean philosophically? And are there any flaws inherent in this concept? And are there any ways that we need to rethink the way we engage authority, the way we mm -hmm. take and assume authority? And so um, I will put him on my Mount Rushmore because I think that particular book which was written in my lifetime. And this is tough to say about a book that's written in your lifetime. I would say it's one of the most important contributions to political philosophy, period. Mm. And no one will be worse off for having read it. Mm. I think mine's Michael Thompson. <laughs> Wait, Michael Thompson. <laughs> Wide receiver a, for yep. the New Orleans Saints, who is one of the best receivers in the league. Man, you're going too deep with it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so bad when he was like Michael Thompson. I, like Michael Thompson. I was like, oh man, can I redo yeah. my? <laughs> no, I'm just. I appreciate. No, I love that you go deep with stuff. I, I appreciate the depth. I was thinking Jay Fox, B. Jordan. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jay Fox is is tight. That's the man. Phelps. Mm -hmm. I think Phelps has to be oh, mentioned in yeah. terms of like greatest yeah. athletes. But of course, his drive is inspiring. Like he, yeah. Yeah, there's so much. I mean, it's his accomplishments, but very similar to like Michael Jordan, like the story of how he got mm. through those accomplishments and like what he had to push through to get there. Yeah, like that's a, yeah, it's a good hero's journey story. Here's one that we don't talk about, though. Mick Jagger, real name Michael. <laughs> Is his real name Michael? Michael Jagger. Yeah, we got to put him on Mount Rushmore, right? Yeah. Let it, us know in the comments, patrons, who's on your Mount Rushmore of mics. We are going to get into some more surprise questions here in a moment. But first, I'm going to read some more about less. I've referenced the parable of the Chinese farmer in the past, and I just wanted to get it on record here. This is uh, from Alan Watts's retelling of this parable. We'll put a link to this 
in the show notes as well. Once upon a time, there was a Chinese farmer whose horse ran away. That evening, all of his neighbors came around to commiserate. They said, we're so sorry to hear that your horse has run away. This is most unfortunate. The farmer said, maybe. The next day, the horse came back bringing seven wild horses with it. And in the evening, everybody came back and said, oh, isn't that lucky? What a great turn of events. Now you have eight horses. The farmer again said, maybe. The following day, his son tried to break one of the horses. And while riding it, he was thrown and broke his leg. The neighbors then said, oh, dear, that's too bad. And the farmer responded, maybe. The next day, the, cons the conscription officers came around to conscript people into the army. And they rejected his son because he had broke a broken leg. Again, all the neighbors came around and said, isn't that great? And again, the farmer, maybe. The whole process of nature is an integrated process of immense complexity, and it's really impossible to tell whether anything that happens is, is good or bad, because you never know what will be the consequence of the misfortune, or you never know what will be the consequences of good fortune. Mm -hmm. This concept of good or bad, and I, I know I see it in my own life, because especially with my daughter, because I'm trying to encourage her, right? She's nine years old now. And if I want to encourage her, oh, that's good. But I was having this conversation with her the other day, uh, trying to explain to her because she asked, well, some things are good, some things are bad. And I said, well, maybe. <laughs> and she was like, well, what do you mean? Like, there, I believe that there are some things that are good. I'm like, well, what? She's like, ice cream. Ice cream's good. Mm -hmm. And I said, what would happen to me if I ate ice cream? And she goes, oh, it'd be bad. <laughs> I said, yeah. And so it's not about good or bad. It's all cause and effect. Because even if Ella eats a bunch of ice cream, there are consequences for that as well. It might taste good. It might be delicious. But it's certainly not morally good. But also the consequence if she eats ice cream every meal every day is dis-ease, is unhealth, mm -hmm. right? And so... The things that appear to be good in the moment are all often very bad from a different perspective. Yeah. You know, there's another theme present in that story, too, because as you were reading it, I thought to myself, man, that crowd sounds a lot like Twitter. The need to pronounce an emphatic judgment about every observation, the complete inability to observe something happening and simply say, interesting, fascinating. Yeah. What's going on there? We've lost that. That's a lost art. We now have to have an official statement for everything that occurs. Here is my official take on it or else I don't get to be a thought leader. I don't get to be a player in the game. I risk becoming irrelevant if I don't tell you what T.K. Coleman thinks about every single thing that happens in the universe that other people are talking about, not because I'm interested in it, not because I've ever demonstrated to you that I care about these things, not because I'm knowledgeable about it, not because it resonates with me, but because I fear being irrelevant because everyone else is talking about it. So if I don't tell you what I think about the basketball game, even if I don't care about basketball, I, I will cease to exist. So I must say that's a good thing that Elon Musk did that. That's a bad thing that Elon Musk did that. I can't simply say fascinating. Interesting. And so sometimes the problem isn't just 
that we might think a thing to be good or that we might think a thing to be bad, but that we don't even give ourselves the space to say, perhaps I'll give my judgment on the matter after a little time has passed. That too is an option. But for now, I'll be curious. And yet we're told that your silence is violence, Mm. TK. And that if you don't speak up about who won the basketball game or what Elon did or what's going on with a particular war, then you are culpable in a way. And so maybe you can expand on that a bit. Yeah, it's we, we put a lot of pressure on people by saying, well, your audience wants to hear from you. There are a lot of people who look up to you and who respect what you have to say. So surely you, too, must weigh in on the latest, greatest controversy that everyone else is talking about. And it can easily feel like you are letting people down by not gracing them with your particular opinion about something independent of your own qualifications, your own sense of aliveness and so on. And I think that's tragic because I believe what we have observed happening since 2020 is I think we went from having a world of so many diverse, interesting thinkers and creators who were all showing up, gracing the world, gifting the world with something cool just because they thought it was cool. And then all of a sudden, the whole world got boiled down to about five things that everybody's talking about. We're debating mask mandates. We're debating vaccines. We're debating Biden, Trump. We're debating, you know, the war. Like they're only we're debating race. They're only about like eight topics now. And everybody's talking about the same thing. And I don't say that as if that's morally wrong, because I would be guilty of the very same thing, rushing to a judgment like here's TK's official stance. That's a bad thing. But I think we put our creative potential at peril when we subscribe to an idea that says my conversation must be dictated by something other than my own interior guidance. What makes us interesting as a human being is that we are interested. What makes us fascinating is that we are fascinated. And when we leave behind what is interesting to us, what is authentically fascinating to us for the sake of playing a game of keeping up, I got to make sure that I protect my existence by talking about something for no other reason than everybody else is talking about it. We, we lose who we are in the process. We might get a few clicks today and this week, but what are we building towards that's actually going to matter or be remembered a year from now when everybody who's talking about this issue has moved on to whatever else is hot? Speaking of 2020, we have a question here from Trippy. Who did the minimalists vote for in the last election? Why did they vote for two different candidates? And then Ellen had a question for us that I thought tied in well with this. What was Ellen's question? How can we maintain harmony in our relationships without censoring entire subjects like religious and political beliefs? Let's start there and then Ryan and I can talk about voting or whatever. I come back to this question, though. How will my answer to that question heal the people listening to this, right? Because... Otherwise, it's simply me pontificating about what my beliefs are, what my worldview is, how righteous I am. I call it off-the-rack self-righteousness because look how right I am. I made the right decision. I support the current thing is the current meme, right? And it doesn't matter what side you're on. Quite often, we want to be accepted. And so the shortcut we think to acceptance is what? If I just agree with everyone around me, then I will be accepted. Mm. And that is true until you fundamentally disagree. And you're going to at some point. 
And that's what I love about the three of us. We did an event, the three of us recently did an event with Ken Coleman. And when I realized we were on stage, we were in Washington, D.C. It was on January 6th. Wow. It was the anniversary of, of sorts, except ours was an insurrection of love and joy. Mm-hmm. But what I noticed when we were on stage, and this never came up on stage because it didn't need to come up on stage, is all four of us voted differently in the last election. Mm. And how could you possibly be friends with, share a stage with, share a business with, share a life with someone who thinks something different from you. And so Ellen says, how can we maintain harmony in our relationships without censoring entire subjects like religion and political beliefs? TK, what would you say to her? Well, it's interesting because you said, if I make myself agreeable, I become more accepted. But I think the follow-up question to that is, you become more accepted as what? You become more accepted for what? You become more accepted as a harmless entity that never makes anyone else uncomfortable, which means you've literally traded in your capacity to contribute to someone else's growth. If you don't have the ability to make someone uncomfortable, or if you censor those aspects of yourself that are capable of quote unquote ruining someone's day, then that means you've taken yourself out of the game of ever being able to have an impact on someone that rocks their world. The only way to positively rock another person's world, the only way to make another person think in a new direction or unlock new possibilities in their lives is to be willing to take the risk of taking the conversation in a direction that tries to make them laugh but fails, that tries to provoke them but fails. You got to be willing to take that risk. And so it's easy to think about the cost of making people uncomfortable, but there's also a cost of making them too comfortable. When we make them too comfortable, we neutralize ourselves for a friendship that in the end won't be worth holding on to because it's not a friendship rooted in self-authenticity. It's a friendship sustained by us maintaining a facade that says, I will try as hard as I can to not be myself for the sake of keeping you around so that your company can be enjoyed by someone that isn't even me because I'm not here. I gave up who I am just to keep you around. What's the point of that, right? Um, Yeah, so I think a lot of people say things like, you know, never talk about religion and politics and things like that because it brings people apart. I say it's the opposite. I say if you want to be a good human being and if you want to connect deeply with people, I think it's great to continuously expose yourself to conversations that are difficult to have and that make you uncomfortable because that's when you are grappling with the fundamental questions of life. What is the meaning of life? Is there an objective meaning or is meaning what we make of it? What is society? What is the common good? What is an individual? What is the best way to organize a society? These questions are risky because they're difficult to get right. They're difficult for us to agree on. They're difficult for us to compromise on. And we're going to take some wrong turns and get into fights about it. But those are all the conversations that lead to spiritual depth. Those are the conversations that lead to interior richness. And so I think it's important to choose friendships based on people that you can afford to be angry with and irritated with. Mm. If you can only be friends with people that are good friends when everyone is happy with each other, then you have a friendship that's comfortable and that feels good, but it doesn't take you very far. 
mm. or at least to any place that's worth going. Mm. I think about sometimes we have these political ideologies that we cling to and then we form our own sense of self, self-worth or what we do is we say that box looks nice. I think I'll wear everything in that box, mm, even yeah. though it doesn't fit me if I do any sort of critical thinking. And that's the problem because then we we then transpose that box onto so if I hear Ryan voted for X candidate and now all of a sudden I'm like, he must believe this about masks. He must believe this about vaccines. He yeah. must believe this about abortion. He must believe this about all of these other topics, right? Because of this one thing that it, he did. He voted for this person. And so now I'm ascribing intentions onto him based on one particular preference. And so what we do is quite often we like to dismiss people based on one decision that mm. they have made. And yeah. unfortunately, a question like this, and if we were to sit down and talk, I'd be happy to tell you who I voted for. But right now, if we did it on this podcast, it creates some political clutter. Yeah. Because what it does for us here is it otherizes us. And I find it far more interesting that the three of us voted differently in the last election. And it doesn't matter about who we voted for. I wrote in Ryan Nicodemus, if I'm being honest here. <laughs> oh, is, so then we did vote the same. <laughs> uh, and, and what I've learned about Ryan is, yes, he may think differently yeah. uh, from me politically, mm. but instead of me injecting my self-righteousness, how could you do that? Hey, help me understand this. Yeah, Let me understand that because not even if I don't end up agreeing with you, it still allows me to better understand my best friend. And that understanding leads to a deeper compassion and acceptance. Mm -hmm. Because the, the opposite is what? Let me reject you because you have a different belief from me. Well, eventually I'm going to reject everyone if that's the case. Yeah. You know, we've talked about this before, Josh, how we often say being wrong is an incredibly difficult thing for people to do. If someone points out an error in something that you said and or you receive constructive feedback for something that you, you a uh, mistake that you made, it's incredibly hard to be wrong. Jesse I, Smollett. Oh, man. How dare you? Too soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, well, I don't know if it's too soon. Um, but I, I think it's also incredibly difficult to be right. I think one of the hardest things to be in life is right about something without being a complete jerk about it. And mm -hmm. if you want to understand more deeply why people have such a hard time admitting when they're wrong, just pay attention to how people act when they're right. They don't make yeah. it easy to concede. Like we can be incredibly mean, incredibly rude, incredibly insensitive about the experience of being right. And so mm. these, these questions about relationship and conversation and politics, it's not just about the difficulties created by people who disagree with us, but also the difficulties we create by thinking that we're right about something and being completely unforgiving or unempathetic towards those that we think are wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there was I was having a conversation with someone, and they felt like they were right about something, yeah. and they were really talking down to me. And mm. I was just like, "Can you?" I was like, "We love each other, right? Like, can you just like show me a little respect?" And they were like, "Why are you tone policing me? Mm. Have you do you know about this term tone policing?" Yeah, I'm aware. Yeah, and yeah, it's just th what this person is doing is something they call cry bullying. By the way, uh, 
Yeah, but regardless, wait, wait, okay, can, can we can we um just like quickly explain yeah. what the what tone policing? So tone is policing is basically is? saying the idea of tone policing is like, hey, you're right about what you're saying, but I refuse to talk to you about this subject because of the way you're talking to me. Mm. And that's not what I was saying at all to this person, right? But you know, there are these I would consider when someone brings up tone policing, it it, it could potentially be a thought terminating cliche. So a thought terminating mm. cliche means, well, because someone said this or because someone voted for that person or because someone is this religion, I can automatically disregard them and know that uh, I don't need to talk to this person. And it's it's a thought terminating cliche because it's one thing that basically helps you put a wall up to an idea or or a human being yeah. because of one small thing. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. But it's just, it's just interesting to me like how... Why does it matter who Josh or TK voted for? Like that is such a um, those are thought terminating or, or potentially thought terminating cliches for people. Mm-hmm. And for us to talk about it on this podcast, it would be distracting. It would be taking away from what we're actually doing. And at the end of the day, these are preferences. These are not um, they, these aren't life or death uh, uh, decisions. They, they're just simply preferences. And I would never. I would never not associate with someone or get angry over someone else's preference. Yeah. In fact, I go out of my way to hang out with people who have different preferences than me to go back to what you were saying, Josh. Like, I really want to understand certain people and and where they come from and where and where these ideologies come from. It's fascinating to me. Like, oh, wow, how could you think? And I'm not going to give any examples here because I don't want to distract. But, you know, there might be a subject where I'm like, oh, wow, that person really sees the exact opposite of me. Where are they coming from? Why do they see the exact opposite of me when it comes to that subject? And that is so much more powerful than A, putting myself in a bubble with people who believe only what I think uh, or or agree with me, you know, wholeheartedly, uh, you know, 100% agree with me. And it also prevents me from trying to force my my, uh, my perspective or my preference onto someone else. Because that's really where... That's really where it, it gets in the way of a relationship is we're trying to enforce our preference on someone else. Oh, I can't believe you feel that way. And what do we always say? Judgment is just a mirror that reflects the insecurities of the person who's doing the judging. And it's, you know, if I'm judging TK on a preference and saying, hey, man, uh, man, if I was in your shoes, I would feel really stupid if I thought that. So I'm going to tell you why you should feel stupid for thinking that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it blows my mind how these things get in the way rather than looking at them as an opportunity to learn a little bit more about life and hum- humanity and, and preferences, perspectives. Here's, I got a question for you guys to uh, build on that. Cause I've had people say this to me before. Some, I can hear some people saying, yeah, but this isn't about like ice cream and apple pie. Mm-hmm. This actually is a matter of life and death because if you vote for one person, X amount of people are going to die because mm-hmm. they may be more inclined to go to war. Yeah, or if yeah. you vote for this person, lots of lives might be li- uh, lost because they'll be inclined to take this position on pro-choice. Yeah, These disagreements for people that feel very passionate about them do seem like they're a matter yeah. of life and death. So how, how do you deal with the fact that, some, that somebody disagrees with you politically uh, and, and they're espousing for a position that makes you feel like, hey, you hate my people. You're okay with violence against my people or or, or my family yeah. or something like that. I mean, I, I look at that as, uh, what do they call it? Um, appealing to the consequences fallacy. Mm. So you're essentially, you're making up a what if scenario. 
if you do X, then Y will happen. And this is a, it's a bad argument when, when, to me, when someone brings that up and I don't like sit there and look at him and say, that's a bad argument. I'm just usually will say something like, um, we're talking about hypothetically mm-hmm. and it does, you know, if I vote for one person, then maybe X people will be treated badly or die. But like, if I vote for the other person, there's certainly going to be X people treated badly and that will die. It's, it's not going to be my vote that creates this life or death situation. The, I'll tell you the worst argument is the what about ism. That is like the worst argument that mm-hmm. I've, oh man, could you imagine if uh, like, you know, something happens. Mm-hmm. Will Smith slaps, you know, Chris Rock. Could you imagine if that was uh, two white guys doing that? I mean, I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like what about ism is the worst form of an argument to me. <laughs> I, TK, I just go back to the parable of the Chinese farmer. Well, Alan Watts was talking about the end of that when he said, because you never know what will be the consequence of misfortune. Mm. And you also don't know what the consequences of good fortune are. So you might do all the right things and vote for the right person and behave the right ways. And it ends up getting you or someone you know killed, yeah. right? Mm. You know, if you would have just listened to your wife, you wouldn't have gotten to that car accident. Right? What about that, <laughs> right? right. And, and yeah. we can do whatabouts all day, right? Yeah. And we can create these hypotheticals that worry us, they distress us, they make us miserable, but they don't get to some sort of fundamental truth, ultimately. But I'm curious, yeah. how do you mm. respond to that? When I think about intense scenarios where life is at stake, think of like a hostage negotiation or a 911 call, it seems to be the case that the best thing you can do in those situations is to keep the conversation alive, right? Because if you're negotiating with someone that has hostages and they have a tendency towards violence, you've lost the moment you or the other person shuts it down and says, we're done talking. Mm -hmm. Then you're in danger, right? Mm -hmm. Or if someone makes a 911 call and you're on the other end, things are most at risk If that person has stopped talking, Mm. you want to keep them talking, even if what they're saying isn't the most meaningful, keep them talking. And I think the same thing has to do with important conversations about politics. Well, if life and death is really at stake and this is a really important issue, then we can either shut it down because we hate the fact that we disagree so much Mm -hmm. or we can keep the conversation alive and find a way to keep talking. Mm -hmm. And so I think the solution lies in the direction of keeping tough conversations alive, even when solutions aren't guaranteed. Because the alternative is to put life at greater risk by Mm. cutting each other off, building up conversational walls. And that doesn't mean to acquiesce to their point of view. Oh, I agree with you. I need to placate you now. That doesn't seem to be what you're talking about. And I think quite often that's what it's easy to do. Oh, you know what? You're right. And and it's it's patronizing in a way, Mm. even if they don't realize that you're patronizing. Here's what self-righteousness does, though. Whenever I say, oh, you voted for that person, but you should have voted for this person? What, or what I'm saying, who'd you vote for? What am I doing? I'm putting myself on a pedestal and hoping I can bring you up on the pedestal with me. Otherwise, I'm going to look down on you, not realizing yeah. that that is an ugly place to be. Yeah. To place one self on a pedestal doesn't give us the opportunity to commune with people, to be in communion with people, to be in community with people, because there's only so much room on that pedestal, right? Mm -hmm. And 
we're inadvertently looking down on the people we love whenever we inject self-righteousness into the equation. Yeah, but, it's it's inter- yeah. I think this all comes from our need to moralize everything. Mm. And I don't, I don't know where that comes from, but I mean, I I was raised in it. So maybe, you know, I don't know if it's nature or nurture, but uh, one of the best things I've done, and you've helped me with this, Josh, within the last like, you know, three or four years is to stop placing value judgment on things. It's like you can say something and it can just be ambivalent. It doesn't ha- you don't have to assign it value. And I think that's really where it goes wrong is we start to say good, this, bad, that, and we don't allow room for anything in the middle. Yeah. Um, there is no good or bad. There's only cause and effect. Mm. And you may not prefer the effect. You may not prefer the cause. But mm. when we think about things that way, mm-hmm. yes, there's good and bad in terms of preferences. But in terms of the intrinsic good or bad in an individual decision, quite often it boils down to the cause and the effect. The farmer story is a great example of mm. someone holding space for no judgment at all. Amen. Yeah. And like that is, that's, that's where the real power comes into like to understanding others and to, um, to, 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 I was going to say deescalate, but it, maybe it's not deescalate as much as it is preventing something from escalating. Yes. Um, I think so, that's, that's what TK is talking about here yeah. is you're constantly deescalating by keeping the conversation going mm-hmm. because escalating to the point where there's anger, rage, violence, that's not a conversation anymore. Anger is not a conversation. Rage prevents conversation. Mm. Keeping the conversation going requires a detachment, not clinging to an outcome, not clinging to the pedestal or the self-righteousness, right? Yeah, Yeah. and there are ways to keep a conversation alive that allow for breaks, Right. So keeping the conversation alive doesn't mean, hey, look, we have to talk about this really tense issue right here and right now. It can mean, hey, we've hashed this out for two hours. We're both pretty tired. Maybe let's pause it here and take a break. But let's let's keep this alive. Let's let's agree to bring this up again. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing I would say is, is, you know, this good or bad thing. I I like the phrase you use. You says the real power, because I I think there's something about good and bad that's very useful for manipulation. Mm. Because if I can convince you that your behavior is bad, then I have a better chance of making you feel bad, which can then be used to incentivize you to do what I think is good. And if I can convince you that your behavior is good, well, now I can get you to feel good. And now I can manipulate you into doing more of what I want to do. But if I take away good and bad and I say, well, hey, it's not good or bad. I just enjoy it more when you behave this way. Now I don't have any leverage. Now I have to place faith in our relationship and rely on you doing this thing that makes me feel good out of your own free desire. And that's scary. So it's like being in a relationship. Like, how do you want to hold that relationship together? Do you want the other person to be faithful to you because you make them feel bad for the possibility of cheating on you? Or do you want that person to be faithful to you as an organic, authentic expression of the fact that they're just so crazy about you? You're the only mm-hmm. one that they want to be with. Yeah. But it's hard to place faith in our relationships. It's hard to take chances with one another and say, this is what I love. I hope that you love me too. Or I hope that we can create some awesome experiences together. I have no control over you. I have no power over you. I can't oblige you to anything. You don't owe me anything, but let's see what we can do together. Mm. You know, let's take a chance at falling in love, right? That's hard to do. 
it's much easier to say, hey, this is right, this is wrong, and if you do this, you're going to go to hell for it, yeah. you know, and, and now I can kind of control you. And, and, and we allow ourselves to be manipulated in that way because we intend to manipulate in that way. And so we, we take the hits that we want to dish out. And it's a it's kind of a, a sad cycle. Mm-hmm. A coercive relationship is not a relationship at all. It's indentured servitude in mm. a way. And yet we go through life quite often attempting to coerce or the nice word is persuade which yeah. simply means like to lightly co- co- coerce someone or yeah. convince someone. Yeah. And as yeah. we do that, I'll convince you that I'm right. Mm-hmm. I'll convince you that my pedestal is where you should be. You want to be up on this pedestal with me? Mm-hmm. You want to come look down at everyone else with me? Great. All you have to do is change all of your beliefs to conform to mine. Mm. You'll have my approval. Mm. We have a question here from Daniel. Is my vote worthless? I'm considering not voting. Is this a privileged position? Well, let's talk about privilege. But before we get into that, I have I, I, I've blacked out my address here, but <laughs> I have my ballot. It's I haven't gone through it. I'm opening mm-hmm. it here on the podcast. Can, yeah, we'll get post production uh, P3. He can hear this here, right? You can you get all the uh, the unwrapping of the ballots. By the way, Josh, if I convince you to vote for the person I wanted to vote for, that's not consent. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and, and so my my wife has this T-shirt that says like coercion is not consent, but mm-hmm. I would say that convincing is also not consent. Yeah. And so I've got my little virtue signal here. Um, I'll throw this on. Um, I voted today. <laughs> Does that look good on me, Jordan? They haven't changed that sticker in like five years. All right. And so there's so many... <laughs> It's like the same one. So many people. I, I can. So th- let me let me set this up, Ryan, because you it. and I had this conversation on the podcast, and some people got frustrated because I simply asked the question. I said, "Hey, I'm voting this coming weekend, but I'm just wondering, like, does it even make sense to vote? Does my?" And so, like, mm. I'm glad Daniel's question came up here because it's very similar to a question I had before. And so, I do plan on voting in this election, but what I will tell you and maybe TK can even challenge me on this, is I will spend somewhere between six and eight hours of my time. It's miserable. Researching. Half of them don't even have a website. Yeah, and I automatically like cross them out if you couldn't bother to have a website at this point. Yeah. But like it's so many people. And I have to, I mean, look, national election, the United States senator, full term. And then there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve different people. Wait, oh no, it keeps going. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23 people, or write-in candidate, which mm. so 23 people that I have to research if I want to vote for any of, of these people, because I feel as though, well, if I don't if I vote blindly, which I've done in the past, mm-hmm. did I waste my vote? But getting back to Daniel's question, I, so I have to do this for every single issue on here, and it's a huge, you can hear this if you're just listening here. I mean, it's a thick ballot. This page is intentionally left blank. Um, says that in writing, which is strange. <laughs> Don't um, we have that in our book? <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we stole it from the ballot. Yeah, so... I look, go through any one of these and it's going to take me six to eight hours. So, yeah. And so what's the charitable response to Daniel when he says, is my vote worthless? I'm considering not voting. And also, is this a privileged position? Um, TK. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So a few different elements here. Number one, is this a privileged position? I think that's irrelevant. Not irrelevant in the sense that I am going to dismiss your question and that your concern is important, but irrelevant in the sense that no matter how you come down on the privilege issue, it still doesn't answer the question or get to the heart of things. Case in point, hey, I have $10 million and I'm not sure how I want to spend it. Should I give it to charity? Should I buy a Ferrari? Should I buy a mansion? Is this a privilege problem, guys? Yes, it's definitely a privilege problem. Secondly, it tells you nothing whatsoever about what you need to do with that money. You still have the question there. You have $10 million. Absolutely, that's a privilege problem that most people are never going to have, but it doesn't matter. Having a privilege problem doesn't mean that that that's a problem, right? We are all privileged in different areas from one another. Privilege in this sense just means you have the luxury of possessing problems that stem from having advantages. And we live in a world that makes us feel as if we have to apologize for having our advantages. You don't have to apologize for having your advantages. In fact, apologizing for your advantages just wastes the valuable time you need to be spending on what am I going to do with these advantages? How am I going to express the advantages I have or use them in a way that's advantageous, in a way that's healthy, and so on? So if you got $10 million and you don't know how to spend it, yes, that's a privileged problem, but we still have the question. What do we want to do? What reflects your values? So that's the first part. Don't spend so much time worrying about if your problems are privileged or not. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. Secondly, um, is my vote worthless? Neither your vote nor your non-vote is ever worthless because everything that you do sends an economic signal into the marketplace. If you don't vote, that's actually an action that has impact. If you do vote, That's an action that has impact. And who you vote for is an action that has impact. So nothing that you do in the realm of voting is worthless. Your action always matters. If you don't show up, it makes a difference. If you do show up, it makes a difference. It's just the question of how does it make a difference? And Mm. now that leads us to the real heart of the question. Should I vote? That's the underlying question, right? Should, Mm. yeah, should I vote? And this is interesting because there, there are a couple of things built into it. Number one, there, there is some sense of like having an obligation, right? Because if there was merely disinterest in voting, there would be no question. You would just act according to that disinterest. But there's kind of like a moral hook that's got you. Like I ought to do something. I have a duty to society. Would I be ignoring my duty to society? So there's that element that's going on. But then there's also some dissatisfaction with the options. There's something that makes you feel like, am I wasting my time here? And it doesn't sound like it's the sort of thing where you feel like, hey, I just hate standing in line. There there seems to be a dissatisfaction with what's being presented to you. So here's what I would say. If you're at a point in your life where you feel like, I don't even know if my vote makes a difference. I don't know if I should vote. I'm actually kind of thinking about not voting or whatever it may be. I would say give yourself permission to step outside of the binary logic of a society that tells you you contribute to evil if you don't endorse like their two-party system that everyone worships. Everyone complains about the two-party system. Everyone complains about the lack of options. And then every time there's an opportunity to vote one's conscience, people tell the same story every single election period without an exception. They say, this one is special. This is the most important one yet. I've never come across an election period that isn't the most important one yet. Mm. And that isn't like really special. Like this, we can't afford this time. 
to vote our conscience. Normally, if things didn't matter, and there's literally never been one of those, if things didn't matter and if there wasn't something really big at stake and we didn't really need to keep this evil villain out of office, then maybe we could vote our conscience by, you know, voting for a third party and trying to contribute percentages to another candidate being able to have a bigger platform. In an ideal world, yeah, fine. But we got to vote for the lesser of two evils. And this mm. is a game that gets played every single time. Again, show me the election that didn't matter where mm. we could afford to vote our conscience. You got to give yourself permission to not make decisions based on the guilt tripping that other people are doing to you. And you've got to vote your conscience. For me, that's taken the form of not voting at all, not endorsing a system that I don't believe in, not endorsing a system that I think is artificial, that I think is manipulated, that I think is designed to pacify us by convincing us that we're having an impact when the real impact is elsewhere. For me, that's what voting my conscience has taken the form of. I don't condemn other people who vote their conscience in a different direction. For some people, voting their conscience has meant I'm going to vote for someone that I believe in, even though I know the chances of them winning are low because I want to do what's right, not do something that I think is wrong or that doesn't reflect my values just because I think it's going to have a um, um, more likely to be on the winning side or something like that. So mm -hmm. I, I, I think the answer here is to get rid of externally imposed shoulds and be driven by your own internal values. Follow your conscience. If that means not voting, if that means voting outside the binary logic of the two-party system, give yourself permission to do it and know that no matter what you do, there will be self-righteous people who condemn you for it and try to make you feel guilty about it. And there's no choice you can make that's going to escape that fact. Just own who you want to be. Mm. Own what you actually believe. Can we talk about one other component of this? I think there is a opportunity cost component. Because if I spend eight hours researching all of the different candidates, I'm responsible, which is also a societal construct, right? Uh, voting you know, responsibility is a construct, any sort of responsibility. And I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just simply saying I understand that quite often the things we think we're responsible for are simply mimetic responsibilities. And when I look at the opportunity cost, what else could I do with those eight hours? Or if I have to wait in line for two hours, now it's 10 hours. Mm -hmm. And so is this the best use of 10 hours for me? Because this is not an infinite resource. And so I'll never get that time back. And mm -hmm. if I can answer, yes, I think this is the best use of these 10 hours, not because someone bullied me into voting, mm -hmm. but because for me, uh, this is the most compelling thing to do with my one, two, five, 10 hours, then I can make that decision and feel outstanding about it. Mm. But if I decide, you know what, I'd rather spend 10 hours working in a soup kitchen. I'm not wrong for that either. Or by the way, 10 hours watching Ozark. I'm not wrong for that either. Right. It, the 10 hours of watching Ozark might have a higher probability of taking you somewhere that you don't want to be based on your own principles and preferences. But that's a question again of, is it healthy or not healthy? Does it work or does it not work based on my own values? Mm. But, you know, one thing I would encourage people, if I can just go ahead and push my agenda explicitly for a quick <laughs> minute, um, because th th this is my agenda. This is what my life is all about. And if I had to reduce the meaning of my existence to a single thing, I'm quite comfortable being oversimplified as a guy that's only about this and nothing else. And that is find something you feel passionate about 
that can make a society freer, starting with yourself and the people within your sphere of influence and dedicate yourself to that with the very same fervor that people have towards politics. Mm. Politics is not a substitute for self-actualization. Politics is not a substitute for spirituality. And although it has a role, it becomes a very dangerous preoccupation when we use it as a substitute for those things. My biggest concern, I'm not afraid of who anybody out there votes for. There's nobody that scares me because I think they're going to vote in the wrong direction. What scares me is that over and over again, this conversation about voting and personal power is based on the presupposition that the greatest impact we have on society is this decision that we make every once in a while in the voting booth. What frightens the hell out of me is that my neighbor doesn't take themselves seriously as a creative force. And they buy into the illusion, the self-destructive lie, that when they are not at the voting booth, what they're doing doesn't really matter. But what you do in terms of your personal health, your mental health, your creative projects, your family life, your spiritual life, all of those things are things that you can vote for every single day. And if you show up 365 five days a year voting for your mental health, voting for your family, voting for your personal wellness, then a lot of these conversations about, hey, we're stuck in a society where we got two complete idiots, neither of which we like, and we're forced to choose. Those problems will go away because those problems are really an extension and expression of the fact that internally we're so screwed up. Internally, we don't have any options like that's an outer reflection of our own inner mess. And if we focus on dealing with that inner mess, a lot of these issues become a little bit more simplified. So that's my agenda. I, I have no desire to play any role of influence in how anybody out there votes when it comes to politicians. My life is better off the less that I talk about them. But yeah. vote for yourself, please vote for your potential, yeah. vote for your creative power. And I mean, that's the biggest takeaway that I'm hearing here. It's like you do you, man. Who, whose question is this? Daniels? Yeah. Daniel, you do you, buddy. What's going to make you feel good? Like, that's what it comes down to. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter. If I sit here, and I do, I, I like, I will totally be like, Daniel, you should go out and vote. Your vote matters because of my upbringing. And I've talked about this before in the podcast. Like, I was taught to not vote, to stay politically neutral because don't worry, Jesus is behind the wheel. Don't worry about it. Um, I, uh, as an adult, I'm like, oh, wow, I kind of resent that. So like I go out on my way to vote, I'll encourage people to vote, but me encouraging people to vote is just like if I was to encourage people not to vote, just push, pushing my preference. Mm. Drink Mountain Dew. Isn't it funny that we also see these campaigns of make sure you get out there and vote every four years during the presidential cycle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We rarely talk about that with respect to your, your local mayor or you know, the local sheriff, which probably has way more effect on your life than the president does. And we definitely don't talk about it when it comes to anything related to personal health. Mm. That, that would be considered imposing your religion and root. Totally okay to tell people to get out there and vote in the name of moral duty and obligation. Completely rude and insulting and disrespectful of people's freedom to have an opinion about their physical or mental health. Hey, bro, I think you should read more. Hey, man, I'm just standing out of love, man. I never seen you pick up a book. You watch eight hours of TV all day. I never see you work out out of love, bro. Mm. That makes me an evil villain who's so rude, who imposes religion on people. But mm. I can tell you to go out there and vote. And that's socially acceptable. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and one of those. Oh, but that just has to do with me. You know who I vote affects society. No, absolutely not. Like your mental and physical health affects everybody in your life and to a greater degree because your voting decisions are just an extension of that more fundamental reality. Yeah. There, are, there are aspects of your life that who you vote for don't affect. 
there are zero aspects of your life that your mental health and physical health don't affect. Mm. Let's answer a question from Amber. What do the minimalists think about the war in Ukraine? Hmm. Here's what I'll say. It doesn't matter what Ryan and I think about. Like, what are your beliefs? What if I say, oh, it's great. (laughs) What is that going to get you, right? Here's what it's going to do. You're going to say, oh, well, that's a weird stance to have. And now I disagree with you. Now I no longer approve of Josh or Ryan or Mm. both of you, right? Mm -hmm. I don't approve of TK. So I can turn this podcast off or I can stop falling. Or I want you to believe exactly like me. And so if Josh says you know what? I think the war in Ukraine is awful. I think all wars are terrible, but especially this war in in Ukraine. And uh, that is my personal belief. I think all war is terrible. Yeah. I think all war is a byproduct of unenlightened people. No enlightened person would ever go to war. Now, that's not a very practical thing. There's a, not actionable, right? Mm. Well, if Putin were just to become more enlightened. I was uh, driving here this morning and there's a bike shop near my house and there was this beautiful sort of bumper sticker. It was a window sign in the bike shop and it said, fight Putin, ride a bike. And mm. there's a whole world in those five words, mm-hmm. right? Because it signals a few things. On the surface, it tells you like who they support or whatever, right? Mm. I support the current thing, mm. right? But they do so in a playful, creative way that says, hey, here, here's my stance, but also like, here's something that you can do with your personal life. So you're not as dependent on oil or foreign countries or fossil fuels, et cetera, right? Mm. But then there's also some other thing that's part of that. And it's like, hey, enjoy this type of consumerism. Um, (laughs) uh, We're going to use this war to sell you a bike Mm. is another spin, an uncharitable spin that I could put on that. Now, Either way, I'm simply ascribing an intention onto them. Mm. Judgment is but a mirror, and I am now judging them. Mm. I'm holding up the mirror and saying, well, and even this, like say we were to take this clip from the private podcast, cut it out, put it up on YouTube. Mm -hmm. We don't run any ads, but think of how we could profit if we turned on the ads on our YouTube channel. Now we could too could profit from the war in Ukraine by putting up some sort of title. What do the minimalists think about the war in Ukraine? Yeah. And now... We are running ads against it. We're making money off it. Or you could even argue, hey, we encourage people to sign up for our Patreon. We're doing this whole political clutter episode uh, this week. And so we're doing a long form. Pl- and if you we, we put up the right U- war in Ukraine title, now I'm using the war in Ukraine to sell you something. I don't want that. And so I'll tell you this. Don't mm. if, if this does end up, uh, Jordan, being a, a standalone YouTube clip, don't sign up for our Patreon on the basis of this. There are much better reasons to do that, but certainly has nothing to do with the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I will say this, though. As war being a byproduct of unenlightened people, the solution isn't for everyone to become enlightened. Mm. The solution, if there is one, is understanding. And what do I mean by that? So, yes, there is a war going on right now. There are actually, in fact, there are 23 wars that have more than a thousand deaths that are currently going on right now. And this is not some form of whataboutism. It's understanding that the media gives us salacious news in order to aggregate our eyeballs onto their television show, 
their newspaper, their website, Mm -hmm. so they can place ads in front of us. And so the more salacious, the more clickbaity the headline, the more ads they can serve up to us. So they use things like the war if and only if it gets your eyeballs onto it. Why aren't you hearing about the war in Darfur? Or what about South Sudan? Now, part of that's just because they're old and maybe there's a lack of nuclear weapons. Exactly. But the biggest reason you're not hearing about it the only reason you're not hearing about it is it doesn't get eyeballs onto their product. Because if right. the war in South Sudan got eyeballs onto the New York Times, they would lead with that every single day. It'd be sure. above the fold. It'd be front page. Yeah, It'd yeah. Be, it would be on the website, first thing you saw. Mm-hmm. Because then they could serve more advertisements to you. So understand that sometimes the, the reason that we're paying attention to whatever we're paying attention to is because it serves someone else. Mm. It's not serving us. Hmm. Yeah, like what we call the news is a matter of curation. Like every single day, there are more people who like get murdered or come up missing or die to a tragic accident than we literally have the time to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so what makes the news? Of all the people who die, of all the people who go missing, who get murdered, who suffer, what determines the people that we talk about on the news? Well, what, what's good for business? You know, who, who's going to be more interesting? Who's going to generate the more clicks? And it's such a dangerous thing to define what it means to be informed based on someone else's process of profit-driven curation. We have to be a part of the news by finding our own sources of information that allow us to say, I'm going to study the world and understand the place that I live in according to the things that I think are important. Like lots of people died today. We can't talk about them all. Which ones do I want to focus on? And do I want to focus on any today? Like, but that's really hard. You know, Terrence McKenna has this uh, excellent clip. I encourage everybody to watch on YouTube. Maybe we can share in the links. It's called uh, Create Your Own Roadshow. He's like, you know, turn off the television close the magazines, forget about NPR, forget about the newspaper, create your own show, your own road show. You know, what are your hopes? What are your fears? What are your dreams? Your orgasms? All of those types of things, right? What's going on in your world and what matters to you? Oh, but that's selfish. And when people say that, what that really means is like, I don't like you focusing on what's important to you. I want you to stop being selfish and focus on what's important to me. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the most selfish thing. I need you to contort your worldview to adhere to mine. Yeah. Ryan, what are your orgasms? (laughs) (laughs) So many different things. Oh, man. I, uh, I think people, they worry about the war. They worry about voting. A lot of it's out of fear. Like, I'm certainly fearful of a nuclear attack. I mean, that's why I started paying attention to the war. Um, but yeah, I mean, war, war is bad in jet. Like I feel compassion for Mm. anybody who's like suffering during this war, but you know, it's interesting because we live, we're lucky. I don't even know if I call it a privilege because privilege, the only reason you, 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 the only way you can get to that word and, and, and put that label on someone is if you're comparing them to someone else. So if you're not comparing, then there really is things just are. It's not good or bad. It's not a privilege or not a privilege. It just is. But in this country, you could call it a privilege, I guess. But we have the ability to to not be oppressed as other countries. And because there's this lack of oppression, we have this free will, this free reign. 
that allow us to care about the dumbest things. I'm not calling the war dumb. I'm not calling about, you know, I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about the things that come up in the media. It's like some of these things really don't matter at all, but they only matter to us because we don't have bigger problems than these little things, these little problems that we make a big deal about. And I think that for me is important to recognize that like, yeah, I might get mad over a certain issue. Like, I really don't want to bring anything up. Um, because I don't want to distract from our conversation, but you, know, you don't there, want to clutter it with yeah, the, with political clutter. Exactly. But there might be an issue that comes up and I'm like, oh, I can't believe that that person said that thing or they're promoting this and they should be promoting that. And then, but I have to take a step back and be like, wow, like I'm really lucky to, to care about this, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And not only do all three of us have different political beliefs mm-hmm. or non-beliefs, right? But we also have different religious beliefs. And so I'm going to turn to TK for a second here. You know, my favorite, uh, Bible verse is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Mm, (laughs) And that has helped me so many times. If someone gets outraged at me for something that I've done or said, Mm -hmm. hey, sometimes I don't know what I've been doing for sure, right? But when they have a reaction that doesn't really comport onto reality, forgive them for they know not what they do. They're Mm -hmm. they're treating me a particular way. Mm. Uh, If they're lashing out in anger or fear or whatever it might be. But what's the uh, the serenity prayer? Can you walk me through that? Because I have an exercise I want to walk the listener through. Oh, man. Um, I, I don't know if I have it by, uh, have it like, I, if I can directly quote it, it's kind of a paraphrase, but it it's something to the effect of, um, grant me the... Um, the serenity to... The serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. The... Um, what are the courage to change the things that I can yeah. and, and, the, and wisdom the wisdom to know the difference? Yeah. 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 And so here's, here's a way that I look at news, whether it's the war in Ukraine or it is uh, an article about Kylie Jenner, right? Mm-hmm. Take mm. a piece of paper, mm. make a list of everything that you're worried about. The war, the starvation, Whatever it is. The bathrooms people are using. Yes. Everything that you're worried about, an entire list. And then go in and apply the serenity prayer to it. Mm. Cross off everything Mm -hmm. that's outside of your control. Mm -hmm. And then focus on the things that are in your control. Mm -hmm. So to recap, take a piece of paper. Write down everything that you're worried about. The wars, the celebrity gossip what you're going to have for dinner, everything you're worried about, cross out the things now that are outside of your control. Mm. And then focus on the things that are in your control. Mm. We have a question here Can today. I add something to that real quick? Yeah. Uh, Malcolm X says, of all our studies, history most rewards our research. I think there is great value in consuming things that were not created in your lifetime because it gives you a different sense of time and a broader sense of perspective about the world that you live in. One of the things we underestimate about attention today is that our concept of what is important is so easily manipulated. It literally changes every day. Mm -hmm. And our concept of what we need to pay attention to is often based on what is screaming the loudest or what is shining the brightest. And we have so little control over what's screaming the loudest and what's shining the brightest. And it's very difficult in the moment to be able to evaluate the things that are being talked about 
in terms of big history, right? Will this matter in 10 years? Will this even matter in 10 minutes? Think about all the things that perhaps we felt a lot of emotions about a year ago that we never talk about anymore. When you study history, it improves your ability to get a a feel for the things that stand the test of time. Because when you look at history, there were lots of day-to-day fads and day-to-day trends that just got buried in irrelevance, but there were other broader themes and issues and questions and problems that just never went away or that had a bigger impact on society. And so I think history is so important. And so when you make a list of things like, all right, Kylie Jenner or, you know, uh, the, the, uh, you know the, the Johnny Depp case, or any of that kind of stuff. It's like, all right, add to that list something that has nothing to do with your lifetime. It can be William Shakespeare, James Baldwin. It can be, it can be anything that just didn't happen in your lifetime. And ask yourself, why are the first two things on that list more worthy to be called news or important than the last couple of things on that list? Merely because they're happening now? merely because they're being talked about today. If, if that's your answer, then you might be suffering from recency bias. You might be mm-hmm. suffering from manipulation of people who are experts, people who are the best in the world mm-hmm. at getting you to click on something rather than something that preceded those people's very existence. Mm-hmm. I think history is a great antidote. Mm. That's beautiful. We have a question here from, from James. What are the minimalist thoughts on abortion and Roe v. Wade? <laughs> so, uh, TK, do you want to murder women or babies? <laughs> Is, oh isn't it interesting how these discussions are almost always framed in that way? The, the binary logic that yeah. I referred to earlier, like it's either or, right? It's either or. Like I, I saw something the other day that was directed at people who are um, against abortion. And it was saying, hey, if you really care about abortion, right, presupposing that the people that are against it don't care about saving lives. But if you really care about saving lives, forget about abortion, focus on affordable housing, mm-hmm. focus on access to health care. And we, we, we antagonize our ability to get to solutions by, first of all, questioning the fact that someone on the other side of a debate can actually care about the same things as me. God forbid that we just have significant philosophical or religious differences about very important things. No, it's you don't care about women or you don't care about life, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me what side you're on and I'm going to pin you. I'm going to pin that on you from the start. Mm-hmm. If you're on one side, you don't care about life. If you're on another side, you don't care about women. And then I'm also going to pin on your side a whole bunch of other things that you might believe but I'm going to frame them as things that are against your position. You know, like if you really care about life, you care about access to health care, affordable housing. And it, it just sort of characterizes the nature of polemics today where we don't dialogue to learn from each other and to actually get to solutions. We are at war and we dialogue for the sake of either entertaining people that already share our beliefs or slam dunking on the people that don't. Right. 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 And it becomes a, a bit of a sport. Yeah. Um, and we talked about this recently with Dr. John Deloney about the recreational yeah. outrage. And so such a good term, recreational outrage. That's mm, so good. I, I didn't invent it. I don't know where it came from. Somewhere in the uh, blogosphere. Somewhere on the Internet. Yeah, <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. Cool and place. I think what I 
find fascinating about conversations like these is we can't even have a conversation like this publicly. And that's mm. why we're on the private podcast right now, because mm. we can talk about it. But even something as contentious as Roe v. Wade, it becomes the, this thing that I, I know Ryan and I have a different opinion on this. Uh, in fact, I have an opinion that is so far to one side that like, <laughs> um, yeah, we would it would be unproductive to to talk about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's not even a side. I think both sides would disagree with my opinion about this. Mm. Um, but I will say this. The only way you can really talk about these most contentious issues is indirectly. And we have to do mm. that through jokes. And so the best person I've ever hear I've heard talk about this topic is Dave Chappelle. Mm. And so I'm going to play a clip real quick uh, from Dave Chappelle talking about this very subject before it became part of the news cycle. Mm. This is from Netflix. I'll be real with you, and I know nobody gives a fuck what I think anyway. Uh, I'm not for abortion. Oh, shut up, nigga. <laughs> it all depends on who I get pregnant. <laughs> I don't care. I'm telling you right now. I don't care what your religious beliefs are or anything. If you have a dick, you need to shut the fuck up on this one. Seriously. Now. I'm going to pause it just for a second here because I will tell you this. It's not that I disagree or not that I agree with what he's saying there. Just because you happen to have different genitalia doesn't mean you can't talk about this. But I also want to say that I understand the sentiment and I understand the sentiment of both sides. It's not really a binary thing, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can throw out the whole both sides thing altogether. Mm-hmm. But I will, will tell you this. My opinion aligns with what Dave's saying here is like, why would I tell a woman what to do with her body? But I also understand my mom was, you know, very, very pro-life after I wrote about this in Love People Use Things. So she was forced to have an abortion by a priest. And um after having sex with that priest. Mm-hmm. And so she has a worldview in which she was traumatized by an abortion. And for the rest of her life, didn't criticize people who were, but tried to provide education for young women who might not want to do that themselves. And it was through her own worldview and she she had a compassion. And what I appreciated about that is she has a different perspective from me, certainly a different worldview based on traumatic events. We all have our own traumas though, that often lead to our points of view, our opinions. And it matters much less what my opinion is on this topic if it blocks what the actual truth is. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we have to get to the truth through these comedic conversations. By the way, um, I think one other important element of getting to the truth is persistently fighting for the importance of involving as many people in the conversation as possible. You see it happen in race and gender issues more than any other, but there is a tendency to say, hey, if you belong in this demographic, you don't get to have an opinion. 
right? If the conversation is about race, then you only get to participate in this conversation if you are of a certain race. If the conversation is about a gender issue, you only get to have an opinion. And I think that's flawed and dangerous for two reasons. Number one, it's absolutely impossible for any of us to ever support a law that doesn't impose constraints on demographics that are not our own. To fail to recognize this is to just be naive about the implications of the things that we support. But anytime you support a law or a regulation of any kind, you are supporting something that will use coercion to impose constraints on other demographics you don't belong to in ways that you are not affected by. So if you say, I think heroin should be illegal, then that means you are supporting the imposition of constraints on people other than you and on people who will be affected by those laws in a way that's more negative than how you might be affected by it, mm -hmm. right? If you're a white person and you are anti-crack or anti-marijuana, right? Like you're supporting something that minority people are gonna be more affected by than you, like in this country at least, right? Because we know that yeah. drug laws are enforced very differently depending on economic, racial lines, things along those lines. So. <laughs> None of us can avoid this. But, but the second problem is we, we treat moral high ground as if it's something that belongs to demographics, right? You may not be affected by the things I go through in the same way as me, but that doesn't mean you are incapable of asking me an important question that might lead to the solution that I need. And if I say, no, man, you don't get to ask me any questions, you don't get to challenge my assumptions, you don't even get to be someone who forces others to analyze the possibility that I might be overlooking something because of your demographic. That's a way of insulating myself from the discomfort of being challenged to think critically. Mm. That's a thought terminating cliche that you just brought up. That's exactly what that's a great example of that. Can I inject some more humor into this so yes. that we can yeah, yeah, lift yeah, our yeah, spirits? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Our good friend, social Jess, Jessica Lynn Williams, he, she works on the team. She's been managing the social media for The Minimalist for about seven, eight years now. So it's been a long time. Yeah. We've been working with her. She is amazing. And she calls me up on FaceTime a few weeks ago. And um, she holds up a picture of her, of a sonogram image, an ultrasound image. And... When she says it, that she's pregnant, my first res immediate response, like my brain didn't connect my mouth yet. The first thing that I said was, oh, no. <laughs> oh <my. laughs> I'm so sorry. Wait, why, why was that your reaction? Um, I think that I was probably reacting as uh, there was some conflation in my brain as though Bex was calling me. And oh, yeah. Because that would probably... I it mean, was, it, it was it was a judgment on, oh, if I was in Jess's shoes, I would be like, oh, crap. I think there was a piece of me. No, that, that, no, that if I was in Matt's shoes, her husband, yes, right, I right, would right. be like, and for a second, my brain conflated all of this. And I was like, oh, no, am, am I going to have a kid? I'm like, wait a minute. This is Jessica. This isn't Bex. Like, yeah. what is going on here? And and I had the totally most inappropriate response to her. Mm. But because she loves me and I love her and we care about each other so much. She just laughed and mm. she was like, ah, like, cause that's she knows good. me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we lose in a lot of these conversations, especially when it goes to social media. We don't know each other. So that's we right. ascribe mal and ten and be so easy for Jessica to be offended by that. Right. And instead she laughed it off. She mm. saw the humor in it, in my yeah. mistake. 
She saw the fundamental humor in my mistake. I'm a flawed person. And I reacted in a way that if I had full capacity in that moment, I would not have. And if that had happened online, even though she would say, it's all good, that's hilarious, she would not be able to protect you from the avalanche of reactions that would be like, ah, you're evil. You're the very essence of evil for having this reaction. Yeah. 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 And so it was a funny moment. By the way, congratulations, Jess. This is our first time talking about it publicly. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I asked her uh, yesterday whether or not I could share. I said, yeah, my grocer knows now. So, so the audience can know as well. So you can, uh, you can tweet her. We'll put a link to her Twitter and her Instagram in the show notes. Wish her a congratulations. Or just send her an oh no emoji, maybe. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we have a question from Twitter. We actually have a couple questions here. I wanted to address both of them. Chris and Eli. Eli from Patreon, Chris from Twitter. Let's start with Chris's question. I'm disappointed. I thought you guys loved people and used things, yet you partner with Dave Ramsey, who treats his employees like crap. He's a misogynistic white male, and his religious zealotry doesn't seem loving to me. Why would you align your brand with this bigot? Eli says, Wait, I, on, let's skip. Let's oh. skip Eli's question for a moment. We'll get to Eli here, but we've got <laughs> some words here that... Um, let me give you the, the short answer. So let's take all, out all of these thought-terminating cliches. And I want to approach Chris's question with compassion and without any defensiveness whatsoever. Here's what I'll say, Chris. We partner, we're doing this thing with Dave Ramsey right now with the whole Ramsey Solutions, Ramsey Education team. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with Dave. It has nothing to do with Josh and Ryan or TK. It has to do with kids in Dayton, Ohio. Mm-hmm. We grew up poor and made ourselves miserable in our 20s because we thought the key to happiness was to put ourselves in debt. Mm-hmm. And we started borrowing from our future. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach the personal finance, the, the foundations of personal finance in every middle school and every high school in and around Dayton, Ohio. And that is a philanthropic project. And we happen to partner with someone who, whom you happen to disagree with on certain things. During the minimal episode, TK, you talked about how it should be self-evident that, no, I'm not going to agree with someone about everything. I don't agree with Dave Ramsey about everything. I don't need to say that. I'm not going to say that because I don't agree with Ryan about everything. I'm certainly Mm -hmm. not going to. And Ryan and I align with our values in so many different ways, right? Mm -hmm. And so the reason, why would you partner with someone like Dave Ramsey? Well, I, I completely disagree with the, I respect your right to have an opinion about him. But I'll also say this. It's clear to me that through this question, you don't know Dave Ramsey. Mm -hmm. You say you're disappointed, which is the first thought terminating cliche. Mm -hmm. This is cry bullying, right? Mm -hmm. This is saying, you know, uh, it's putting myself on a pedestal. I'm disappointed in you. How could you do Do better? (laughs) Yes, yes. That's the, oh, that's the best criticism. That (laughs) that inspires me every time I see it. Right. (laughs) And then I hear... Dave Ramsey treats his employees like crap. Well, it sounds to me like you've probably not met any of Dave Ramsey's employees because we've spent a lot of time there. Oh, yeah. It's the only place I've ever been where someone has told me this is the best job in the universe, Mm -hmm. not just on this planet, but in the universe. Now, does that mean that there aren't there are certainly going to be some people, obviously, who have left there? Mm -hmm. And didn't enjoy their time there. No question about that. Yeah. But 
we're, we heap all of these judgments into our question. This isn't really a question. This is a statement appended with a question mark. Let's throw Eli's question in here, then I think we can wrap the whole thing up with TK. <laughs> I've heard some comments from Josh and Ryan lately that are making me wonder about my affiliation with the show. The line of thought that people are making up ideas about people like Dave Ramsey, Kanye West, and God forbid, Michael Jackson have me very concerned. It seems like you both come from a very privileged place being cis white men. Dave Ramsey continuously sidelines people in poverty with the bootstrap analogy, and Kanye West is racist. Seriously? Did we say Kanye West was racist? No, I think he's saying that Kanye West is racist. Um, well, well, I, I, can, can you guys give me a little context? I mean, I, I heard Kanye West. We, I also we heard ta- Michael Jackson. Like, what I, what I re- yeah, what I remember is we were talking about the separation from someone's work and the person that they are. So I brought up Kanye West because I was like, this is when John Deloney was on the show. And I'm like, look, like when I see Kanye, like I think he's um, unfortunate. I think he's mentally unstable first off. Okay. And I think that that unstableness creates someone who um i don't agree with on most things that he spouts about and so to say like to say that i like kanye west would be a lie but i really like kanye west's music and i can separate his creation from the person that he is and that's what we were talking about and we said this with we said it about ramsey uh yeah michael jackson came up um so yeah, I, I don't when anyone when when anyone throws in the cis white male thing, like that is a thought terminating cliche. And all I can say is is like I'm you know hey I'm sorry that Eli and Chris feel this way. I hope that you guys can live a beautiful meaningful life. Like so, I support you in living a meaningful life to the point that if if Chris and Eli if it means for them to stop listening to Josh and I. If it means for them to boycott us, if it means for them to stand on the corner and have a picket sign against Josh and I, I support that because I want them to live a meaningful life. Like there is no, there's no argument to be had with these questions, in my opinion. Mm. It's like, it's like, oh, thanks for sharing your, thanks for sharing your question and your thought. Um, There's so many, it's like when someone comes up to me and they say, well, minimalism doesn't work for poor people. I understand. (laughs) Yes. Like, I don't know what else to say to that. TK, it seems to me. That you remember, like uh, I think it was the Aztecs that would like sacrifice people into the volcano, but they would always need more people to sacrifice into the volcano, right? And I think that's kind of where we are with questions like this. I need to sacrifice someone. Whether I mean, I don't know why this guy thinks Kanye West is racist. I and. Uh, the question itself, I mean, I don't know how it can he connected with Dave Ramsey with Kanye West, and it seems a bit unhinged to me, mm-hmm. but let's take it at face value. I, I don't know whether or not he is, but usually when we call someone racist, that is also a thought terminating cliche or a mm-hmm. convert, certainly a conversation terminating cliche. Mm-hmm. If you want to shut down a conversation right away, accuse someone of being racist or right. privileged or whatever you need to separate yourself from them, mm-hmm. I could never be like you and what does that do i'm going to i'm going to sacrifice these people to the volcano to appease the gods but eventually you're going to need more and more and more people to to give to that volcano now i i have some thoughts of my own i, I want to throw an angel's advocate question out there for a certain like thought terminating terms like 
the accusation of being racist, right? Like mm-hmm. somebody say you're racist, that's a, a thought terminating uh, piece. Suppose there were someone who genuinely and sincerely believed, I'll use race as an example, that you were racist. And also suppose that they wanted to be able to challenge you on that for the sake of fighting for what they believe in, which is a less racist society, less racist society. Sure. How would you recommend they go about it in a way that wasn't um, conversation terminating? Here's here's what I would say. Say someone accused you of being Italian. <laughs> How would you go about that? Now, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, and I, and I hope anybody who knows me knows that I live the spirit of this answer in the way that I interact with people. I honestly would be super curious about that. Yes. Because that's so out of this world for me. Mm. I, I literally have no concept for why a person would ever accuse me of being Italian. Uh-huh. Um, and if somebody ever said to me, you're Italian, I would be like, please tell me why you said that. <laughs> why do you uh-huh. think I'm Italian? Like, I, I, like I'm not even going to sleep tonight yeah. if I can't understand <laughs> the logic behind why you said that. I mean, I might be Italian yeah. and you might yeah, you maybe know, I am teach Italian. me something I don't know about myself. Yeah. I don't think I'm Italian. I feel pretty convinced that you're wrong, but I got to know. What makes you say that? But maybe that's how you approach it, though, is you get to that. Why you get to that? Like when someone says uh, like there is a a blogger that I really looked up to who wrote this whole dissertation on minimalism doesn't work for poor people. Right. Mm. Um, Reading it, I was like, oh, and I saw exactly where he was coming from. And I'm like, with this assumption, with all these assumptions he's making. okay, yeah, I agree with you. Minimalism doesn't work for poor people. But there's a lot of assumptions leading up to that. There's a straw man argument that this was built on that I don't agree with at all. And that's the conversation I want to have. Mm. Like, let's talk about these assumptions. Yeah. Let's talk about why you're getting up to this answer. I can't just, I can't just tackle that answer and, or that statement and say, well, I don't agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's getting to the why. So with the thing that you brought up, I think that's where, that's how you approach that is you dig deeper. Why? why, why how do you get to this conclusion? Oh, really? From there, why are you there? And that, I think, is what helps. Uh, it just helps more understanding. And really, more importantly, um, I think that is the better way to get towards uh, a compassionate viewpoint towards towards the subject. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, one of the, the questions led with, I thought you guys loved people and used things. Mm-hmm. Wh- wh- which implies I mistakenly thought you love people use things or I I, I initially mm, yeah. thought you love people use things, but now I'm discovering that you're wrong for the <laughs> following reasons. And for me, my commitment to learning presupposes that right now, not merely as a matter of theory, I'm wrong about something. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if I, if I thought I was wrong about nothing, I wouldn't be motivated to learn. But I will, I will have failed at life if 12 months from now, I'm not able to look back on today and be able to identify specific things that this TK is wrong about, right? So I'm always open to the possibility or to the fact that I'm wrong about something and my assumptions are invisible to me and, and, and I, I, I don't know what I'm wrong about and I need to be challenged by others in order to realize that. But I think it's sort of a lost art to attribute that charity to others. Suppose for a moment yes. that you're going about 
doing good in the wrong way. Suppose the questioner is right mm. and you guys picked the wrong course, the wrong approach, the wrong state. Suppose you should have went to Chicago instead of Dayton. You should have went with a different program instead of the one that you did. Suppose all of that is right. Maybe it's still possible that you love people, use things, and that you just got it wrong. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I think bringing it full circle with the discussion on things like politics and, and religion in the spirit of keeping conversations alive, because I because I I don't want to treat these questioners as if, hey, your questions should be dismissed. I, I talk to my students all the time in this way and I say, hey, be selfish with your with your challenges and your questions. In other words, if you're going to take the time to take someone to task, mm-hmm. take them to task in a way that increases the probability of success. Yeah. So what and, would be a better way to ask a question like this then? Because the way that these questions are posited right now. Yeah. I mean, Eli's question sounds a bit unhinged. I don't know where the Kanye racism thing comes from. Yeah. And and it tells me a lot about the questioner. Right. Yeah. But there's probably a way because Eli, I love you, Chris. If you're listening to this, I know you're from Twitter. I love you, too. And and. I'm sorry that you see this in a way that I see it completely differently. Mm. I'm sympathetic, though, and to understanding your point of view. So what would be a way that would encourage conversation to better ask a question like this? Two things that work every time. Number one, presuppose nothing about another person's intentions. Even if you have confident sounding guesses as to what their intentions are, don't speak of them because hardly anyone likes it when you make judgments about their invisible inner motivations for doing what they do. Mm. Josh, you are this. You you think this. Just make no presuppositions about their intentions. Secondly, in the form of a question, ask the other party, how do they reconcile what they are doing with what it looks like to you? Hey, man, I just heard that you're working on a project with this guy over here. I absolutely hate that guy. And he seems like he hates human beings. And that makes me feel concerned. I'm curious, man. How do you reconcile your values about loving people with working with someone who seems to me like he hates people? There's nothing to get defensive about there. Yeah, I- I'm telling yeah. you that there's something you're involved in that seems contradictory to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm just asking you to reconcile it. And because I'm not presupposing anything about your intentions, it sounds as if I'm truly open to what you have to say. And like, I truly don't know what the answer is. But when I attribute an attention to you, it sounds like, look, I've already made up my mind about you. And I'm just going to throw this out there, you know, and. I guess if you want to defend yourself, you can, but this defense better be good because I've already presupposed that you're more likely to be guilty than not. Mm. Mm. And, and, and that might be how someone honestly feels, and I can't hate on that. But in terms of being effective, I think the other way is more likely to generate a result, positive yeah. result. Any question that comes prepackaged with accusations mm. is a conversation killer. Yes. These are all... There, I see some words in here, like, I'm disappointed. If you mm-hmm. lead a question with, I'm disappointed, mm-hmm. that automatically puts the other person you're talking to in a defensive stance, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh-oh, what is getting ready to come? It doesn't open up the conversation. It shuts it down. Do I have to protect myself here? Mm-hmm. And then I, I yeah. see it goes on from there. I thought you guys did. I presuppose one thing, and clearly, you don't actually do the thing that you profess to do is the implication of that. And then... Mm-hmm. This person treats his employees like crap. Again, an accusation is shutting down 
the conversation, mm. right? And then why would you align your brand with this bigot? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. again, this is that's another way of saying you know, racist, whatever, Italian, whatever it is. Like yeah. I'm accusing this person of being this thing that I've created a definition for, and I've placed them in that box. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say one more thing, and then we don't have to drag this this issue on any further. <laughs> but um, I like to be empirical rather than theoretical in my assessment of results, and what I mean by that is hey, you know what? Here's something that we've decided to do in an effort to promote financial literacy in underserved demographics. We don't need to assume that we're going about it in the right way. We don't need to assume that this is going to be effective. Let's look at the results and let's let the people speak for themselves. Because just like anyone else, I too can be concerned about entire demographics. But I never want to exalt my concern for a demographic over the testimony of the demographics themselves. This isn't the best way to help poor people. That may be true. That may be right. Let's try the best that we can. And then let's hear from the poor people. And if 90% of the poor people say, hey, we love this course. This changed our lives. It's amazing. Then that means we did something right. And hopefully we've got some room to grow and to do it better. Right. So let's just be open. Let's see how it goes. At some point in life, you have to give yourself permission to go with the knowledge and strategy that you have and to actually try things, even at the risk of being imperfect. But we'll look at the empirical results. Mm. At the end of the day, if we want to help people, we're going to ask the people that we're trying to help, are they being helped? And if the answer is no, there's no need to defend and double down on the approach that we took. We figure out what we need to change. And if the answer is, hey, this is helping us, it's amazing, then we'll agree to not exalt our high intentions above the actual needs of the people who have the power and the freedom and the right to speak for themselves. And I think that's, that's critical. Understanding that Chris, Eli, we respect your right to have right. these opinions, these thoughts, and to voice them. And... Uh, I'm actually grateful for a conversation like this because especially I wanted to have this with TK here in particular because I knew he'd have this different point of view that isn't defensive because yeah. it'd be easy for me to step back and get really defensive about this thing. Here's the truth, though. The vast majority of our audience, 90 plus percent, they understand that even if they don't agree with everything Dave Ramsey says, right, mm -hmm. to go back to that old trope, they understand the intentions behind this of and what the actual outcome is. What is the arrival here? It has nothing to do with Dave. It has nothing to do with the minimalists. It has everything to do with some kids who will benefit, who won't put themselves in debt, who won't borrow from their future, who will understand about budgeting. And that's really what we're doing. And I'm thankful for the hundreds of people, may even be thousands at this point, who have donated something. Even if you donated five bucks, theminimalists.com slash education, you can do that as well. You can help these kids not borrow from their future, mm. learn financial literacy. It's something that will carry with them for the rest of their lives, regardless of what you think about uh, the politics involved or the religion of anyone involved. It's not about that. It's about these kids. And it's about contributing beyond yourself in a meaningful way. Mm. And I'm grateful for that. We have a question here from Ellen. What are your thoughts on the concept of cutting people out of your life who don't agree with your politics? I think we need to couple that with a couple other questions here. Aiden has a question as well. Mm. Is it necessary to discuss politics with friends? 
Deeply personal and polarizing topics often suck me into frustrating conversations that end up weakening relationships. And then finally, a question from Nikki. I wanted to, to sort of combine all of these together. I have friends from all over the political spectrum, but I have a couple of key issues where if a person and I are misaligned, I know I won't be close with them. Do any of you have a minimum value requirement that you look for in close friends? Hmm. So everyone has the same value. Uh, I would just approach it like that in terms of human worth, like your your personal worth, your worth is not determined by your net worth sort of thing, mm -hmm. right? So I think what we're talking about here is values. And yes, I tend to surround myself with people who have similar values as me, but I also I hold their my beliefs loosely so that I don't have to require other people to have my beliefs, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. I would never use a political stance or even, you know, a different opinion than mine on a certain political topic uh, to, to, like, cut someone out of my life. I mean, I the only time I don't foster a relationship with someone is usually because we are we don't have the same interests. We don't have, you know, the same, it has nothing to do with beliefs. We don't have the same values. I think it is important to have friends with the same values. Yeah. And I think interests are also helpful. Jordan, by the way, are all yeah. three cameras just turned off? Are you still good? Are you recording over there? Is this, is this just the backup? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, no, I noticed that too. It threw me off. I was like, uh-oh, are we going to miss all of this? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, uh, yeah. Look, look, here's the thing. If I want to go kayaking with you, I don't care whether or not you voted for Joe Biden or Donald Trump right. or Johnny Jump Up. Exactly. Yes. A and yet. But but I wouldn't go kayaking with you if I was deathly afraid of water. Right. Then you and I aren't going to go kayaking together. Or if I hate kayaking. Exactly. Yeah. You wouldn't want to go kayaking with me. Right. Even, but we voted the same. Yeah. And, and so I do think, yes, it is. For me, these topics rarely come up in the contentious sense when mm -hmm. they come up it's someone like tk they come up in the philosophical curiosity sense yeah i'm interested in understanding more about your philosophy mm -hmm. so tell me why you voted this way or didn't vote this way mm -hmm. and i will approach it from a place of, of non-judgment mm -hmm. because maybe i can understand you better and ultimately i can mm -hmm. probably understand myself better as well mm -hmm. that's so good yeah you know, well, oh, go ahead. well, I was just going to say, like, anytime I have a conversation with someone that has a radically different opinion than me on a specific political topic, like it helps me understand myself better. And it does one or two things for me. And like Josh and I go through this all the time. It's like we'll have a conversation or a discussion or a debate about something. And like one or two things happen. Either I get cemented further into the opinion I already have or I come out of it with a different perspective. And both mm -hmm. of those things are valuable to me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I appreciate the, the, um, the differences of opinion. Like I've got a friend who they said, they brought up something about, uh, you know, my, my, my daughter goes to school. She has a classmate who has, you know, who's got a, uh, a, a, a has two moms, basically two women who got married and my daughter came home confused and she was like, are, can women get married with, to each other? And I had to explain to her how that was wrong. And my 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 opinion is like, wow, like I didn't realize you were religious. 
you know, like, I mean, that's where, that's where roots from is, is religion. Um, I didn't realize that, but in the same token, like I can hold space and be like, you know what? You're entitled to teach your kid, whatever you want to teach your kid. I don't agree with what you're teaching your kid, but like, that's not, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and label you as a bad person because you're not teaching your kid what I want you to, what, what I want you to teach your kid. Yeah. I can't stop you from screwing up your kid. Right. Exactly. Uh, and exactly. it's not just with respect to that one thing. It's yeah. the hundred other things you're teaching them today. Right. Through your actions or through your non-actions, right? Mm -hmm. You're teaching your kids something here, right? But you can't go around policing every parent of every kid, right? Yeah. And the thing too is, is like being friends with that person, that's really the only way to get them to understand my, my perspective. If I, if I, if I like use that as an excuse to otherize them and be like, I can't be friends with someone who teaches their kid that, then I'm just a helping this person cement further into their beliefs. Mm-hmm. They're just, it's just going to prove them right. Yeah. And, and two, like, I'm not, I'm not going to have an opportunity to like open them up to like, to, to a, to a wider perspective or a different perspective. Um, that's, and, and the only way that you can really open people up to a, a wider perspective is, I know it sounds really counterintuitive, but it's actually supporting them as much as you can. Like that is the way that you can get someone to open their eyes a little bit wider. Mm is you go into them with like, oh, I support your freedom to do what you want to do. I don't endorse that idea. Right. For example, I have really good friends who are staunchly pro-life and I have other good friends who are staunchly Mm pro-choice. I have a really close friend who is very against gay marriage and Mm -hmm. I'm very for gay marriage. I remember one point when my mom was hoping that Ryan and I were both gay so that we would get married. (laughs) There's still time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still trying, man. It's just, it's not you, it's me. (laughs) I'm just not into it. I think you're handsome. I'm just not sexually attracted to you. (laughs) (laughs) They say don't knock it until you try it, but I... I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you can cut the sexual tension with a knife. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what I'll tell you, though. It's like that friend. I it's so easy for me to to look at him and be like, how could you possibly think that? And he's a compassionate man. One of the most compassionate. Yes. And it's rooted in a belief that he has that is against the natural order. And you know what? Yeah. Maybe it is. But the problem, and maybe it is, I don't have no idea. Like, what do you even mean by natural order, right? Like, yeah, sure. And, and, but what I do understand here is that whatever that belief is, it doesn't matter. I sent you an essay from Kapil Gupta the other day about beliefs. Oh, so good. Yeah. And it was just about how sometimes our beliefs comport with reality. Yeah. And other times they simply get in the way of what is true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One one angel's advocate position I want to make sure I get on the board is I think our emphasis on tolerance and open-mindedness can very easily sound as if we are presupposing a kind of relativism that all ideas are equally effective, all ideas are equally powerful and so on. I'm not a moral relativist. It's, you know, it's like um I believe that that some things are true, some things are false. I believe that some things are objectively so in the sense that there are certain realities that exist independently of preference and, 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 and feeling and personal perspective. 
you know, so, you know, someone says, uh, hey, there are no absolutes. It's like, okay, is that statement an absolute? (laughs) Yeah. Or is it possible that we treat many things as if they are absolutes and they're totally not, but there is also room for some things that are a matter of absolutes. Um, And so I think the very notion of tolerance presupposes that we can think the other person to be wrong about some things. I actually think that some ideas about how to treat a human being are flat out better, not up for debate, than other ideas about how to treat a human being. I believe that treating human beings with love and compassion, I believe that's an objectively better idea that actually corresponds to reality, more so than the idea that we should be violent towards human beings simply because we disagree with them. So I I do believe in truth and false, although I don't think everything fits into that box of like, this is objective truth, this is objective falsehood. So so let me get this straight. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is there are objective truths, but then there are also subjective truths, right? Absolutely. And and the reason I, I emphasize this is because I, I believe we, we kind of live in a culture that is now turning the very possibility of disagreement into a form of bigotry. And we are losing our ability to say, I think you're mistaken about that, but I still love you. I yes. still like you and I still would love to work together and be friends together and talk about it. And, and, and I think we're we're replacing true tolerance which is the ability to disagree about even moral issues or religious issues, but to do so with respect with this kind of idea that says to disagree with someone is a form of bigotry. And, 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 and if you don't think that I'm right, well, then you hate me or you are violent towards me. And it's like, no, like, you know, I, I could think you're wrong about something yes. and, and I can still like you and I can still love you and I can still be willing to take a bullet for you, but I just can think that you're wrong about something, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's an important thing. Getting to this this question really quickly, I, I do want to make just one distinction about boundaries that might be helpful to, to the people asking these questions. And I think there's a difference between what I'll call organic boundaries and inorganic boundaries. Uh, an organic boundary is a boundary that is naturally established in a relationship based on difference of, of value or interest. Um, so for instance, um, I enjoy praying the rosary. If you are someone who enjoys praying the rosary too, you have an opportunity to get close to me in a way that's different from somebody who isn't interested at all in the rosary. And if you're someone that's not interested in the rosary, that's a natural organic boundary that exists where we're probably not going to connect over that. Mm -hmm. But an inorganic boundary is when I artificially erect a barrier between us based on differences when it's not necessary to do so. So if Josh isn't into the rosary, I can say, well, Josh, it looks like I'm really into the rosary. You're not. I need to put up a boundary between the two of us. That's completely unnecessary, unless it's the kind of situation where Josh is constantly harassing me and attacking me for praying the rosary. But if Josh is like, yeah, I'm just not into that, we can connect with each other over a million other things besides the rosary. And so we don't have to set up boundaries between ourselves and other people for every religious or political or philosophical difference we have. It's possible to say, here's something that's important to me. It's not important to you. But as long as we can respect those differences, we don't have to treat that like a boundary. We can just treat that like a difference. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. You don't need to follow a legalistic rule that says, let me go down the list, identify all the friends who disagree with me about important political matters, and then send them a note saying, I'm (laughs) breaking up with you because we don't share the same beliefs. That's different, however, if you've got friends that don't respect your differences, then 
there may be cases where you need to put some healthy distance between you and them if they don't know how to talk about things in a respectful way. Last thing, as much as I advocate for keeping conversations alive and being open-minded and learning from other people, I also think it's okay to be honest with yourself about your limitations. And if talking about certain things, you know, gets you worked up, raises your blood pressure, ruins your day, um, I think it's absolutely within your rights to place boundaries on how much you're going to engage certain topics. And just because you have a commitment to being open-minded doesn't mean you are obligated to talk with every single person who wants to talk with you about every single topic. Mm -hmm. There are some people you're not going to have good conversational chemistry with. There are some people you're going to say, look, I'm open to learning, but sorry, you and I, we're not going to be the ones to have that conversation. I, mm. I just don't like the energy of talking to you. Feel free to recommend a book. I'll learn from other people, but I, I just don't think we're obligated to force ourselves in the name of open-mindedness to participate in every controversial conversation. If you need a break, if you need to have a conversation with a different type of person, you have that right. Your yeah. mental health does matter and it's okay to think about. It's a great point. Yeah. I mean, really, what you just helped me realize, like the friends I have in my life, like we're interested in in uh, expanding our our life. It's not this closed-minded and it's not this constant arguing. <clears throat> and Because you're right. Like, I mean, that's why I got off of Facebook, man. It's because I felt compelled to like argue with my family members about insert you know, hot political topic. And what I realized is I'm like, oh, like Facebook on its best day pacifies me. On its worst day, it ruins my whole day and I feel like I got to argue with family members. Uh, I got rid of it and guess what? I get along with my family members so much better now. As, so much better. Isn't that amazing? How, <laughs> how, and you know what? I think the problem here is we, to wrap this question up, we mistake like for love. I might not like a the way that Ryan voted in the last gubernatorial election, right? Yeah, I love Ryan. But when I start to mistake, oh, I must not love him because I dislike this one tiny little piece mm. of him. Completely different thing. Mm. Because also, we don't understand hate, really, either. Hate is not the opposite of like. I don't like him. I hate him. No, no, no. Hate is the opposite of love. And to love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. Mm -hmm. And it's quite often what we do when we argue those political topics or we argue these religious topics is to try to change the other person. Mm -hmm. well, the only time we want to change someone is if we hate who they are. And usually we do that out of a sense of self-righteousness. I feel like I am not enough unless I am right about this topic. Yeah. And in order for me to be right, I need you to say I'm right about it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I will hate you unless you back me up mm -hmm. and confirm my worldview. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're not sufficient because if you are sufficient, that must mean that I'm insufficient. Let me ask you something. Help me get through this thought I'm having right now. There are family members that I, that I have kind of written off that that they are against a certain group of people and let's just say racist. Okay. Like, okay. I, I mean, I've got probably a racist family member and I, I'm, I, I like, I look at them. I'm like, um, I don't agree with that. I think it's wrong and I'm not going to associate with you anymore based upon that. And I don't see any path towards you, you know, changing your opinion. Is that, it, it's almost like being bigoted against bigoted people. Like, yeah. is that, is that a good justification? 
I mean, I mean you could do whatever you want. Like, I mean, it it it's this is individual. I think of who's the guy, Daryl, what's his last name? The guy who goes and sits with the Ku Klux Klan. Like, yeah, talks with uh yeah, yeah. Ku Klux Klan members. Yeah. Has has brought a lot of people over to the opposite position. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a black guy who exposes himself to people who have never been around black people for any extended period of time, basically. Mm-hmm. That's what you have to be in order to be a Ku Klux Klan member, is you have no exposure. Mm-hmm. But what exposure does to us mm-hmm. is it softens the edges and helps us realize it's just like the the question we were answering earlier about um, Dave Ramsey. He treats mm-hmm. his employees like crap. Well, that just tells me that person has not been exposed right. to this group of people who you know, think this is the best thing in the world. And so exposure, you know, sun, mm-hmm. so sunlight is the best disinfectant, mm-hmm. right? And so the question would be, you, now you're not compelled to, you're not forced to do this. But yeah. if you wanted to, how would you expose him to the faults in his yeah. way of thinking? Not yeah. in an attempt to, I need to drag you to where I am, mm-hmm. but let me open up and help you see the truth. Because right now you have got the blinders on and I can help take those off for you. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is, is like this particular relative, it's not that they're racist but as much as like, you know, if you voted for this person, you shouldn't be able to uh, reproduce basically. And if they were to ask me, they're like, eugenicists. What's that? Great. Uh, yeah, they're, yeah. 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 They're yeah. Eugenics. Yeah. So, 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 you know, if, if they came, cause I cut them off pretty much, like they'll text me every once in a while, I'll text them back, but like I don't go out of my way. But if they were to ask me, hey, Ryan, why did you cut me off? I would be like, I don't like how you otherize people. Mm. I don't like how you, you negate certain groups of people and just write them off. But I'm writing them off. So, yeah, but you have people to. Up. But, but the compassionate approach. It's to actually what you just talked about was like open them up to the flaws in that way of thinking. That's one compassionate approach. But I will say that the other one could be that, yes, you you can proudly exclude people from your life. And you already do that. There's seven billion people in the world. Sure. Most of whom you exclude because Mm -hmm. of proximity or even if you did, like, do you know your fourth neighbor over? Probably not. Right. And it's because you simply don't have the resources to know everyone all the time. So you mm-hmm. have to exclude. And so is this the best use of my time? We talked about that with respect to voting ear- earlier, mm. but is me exposing this person to the truth, bringing them into the sunlight? I can do that, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that I should do that. It's an opportunity for me if I feel compelled to do so, but I don't have to do it. If I feel like it's not the best use of my time, then I can use my time however I'd like. Yeah, I, I think we need to write a book on the concept of how to love from a distance, mm. because I, I think this is such a lost art that we often feel like we have no option other than to completely cut people off in an absolute sense or to unfortunately, you know, like just go with your, uh, you know, go with, like, if you got a friend that just wants to go to the strip club every night and you don't want to go, well, I guess I got to go with them every night, you know, because, uh, you know. You're describing uh, the, the, Josh and I's relationship <laughs> in my uh, late 20s. <laughs> I can't say I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> Except the Man. one time in Florida. Oh my God. Oh, that that was, feeling when you use the like wrong the two, example. It was like the 2 p.m. strippers. But there was a, we walked in this I don't know how we got in there, but this is the end of a very long maximal episode here. We got one more question here in a second. <laughs> I wa- walk in the door and they said $2 cover charge, which is a, a instant red flag. $2. Yeah. And there is this woman on stage is probably... The cover charge is the red flag. Yeah. Y- y- she was eight months pregnant oh on my stage. God. Yeah. 
And I was like, oh. Like, wait a second. Ryan, can I get my $2 back, please? <laughs> but I'm not to body shame. No, no. <laughs> oh, man. It was funny. I'm sorry to take it off the rails. I wanted to add some more levity, TK Coleman. <laughs> levity is good. No, you know, the, the point is, I, I think loving people from a distance means saying, hey, look, here's what it means to be a part of my world. Mm-hmm. And although there are aspects of your world that my convictions prohibit me from ever participating in or endorsing, you have an open invitation to be a part of my world in the following ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to church every Sunday, no matter how racist you are, open invitation to come with me on any Sunday. Love it. Right? Um, like, what does it mean to be a part of your life in a way that's consistent with your values. I don't think we're obligated to be like, hey man, you're racist, that offends me, I hate to watch the way you treat people, but I guess I have to be your buddy, so I'm gonna come over, even though you're watching programs, listening to music, and talking to people in a way that's disrespectful. Mm. No, we're not obligated to do that. We gotta have those healthy boundaries, but we can still pull people into our world by Mm. saying, here's what it means for me to be me, and Mm. as long as you're willing to roll like this, you can come over into my space anytime. That's this, love from a distance. This has really helped me because like yeah. there is a family member who like I need to learn. I need to see where I can say yes to them more rather than just yeah. like looking at them and being like just writing you off. Yeah. Self-terminating cliche. Like you said this one thing. I'm done with you. Like that's yeah, that's not loving. And also realizing, though, it's OK if you do decide to do is, that. Yeah, because you you've simply decided that this is not the best use of my time. Or maybe it's just, it's stirring. This goes back to Ellen's question, Aiden's question, Nikki's question. It stirs up something in me mm-hmm. that makes me miserable. I, I I am responsible for my own misery. You're not actually making me miserable, right? right? I'm making me miserable because I have certain expectations of the people around me. But the same thing is true. I, I just don't spend a lot of time with people in general as an extreme introvert. It's not wrong to do that. It's not wrong to exclude people from my time because it's what I've chosen to do. And so it's not unloving. Mm -hmm. The only thing that would be unloving is if you tried to take this guy and you were like, hey, here's the way you're going to believe from here on out. Here are the things you're supposed to do. Yeah. And yet we do that in every relationship most of us have done. And especially the people we're closest with. I'll love you if you just change these seven things about yourself, TK. (laughs) Well, that's not love. That's conditional love. And Mm. love with conditions is not love at all. Let's wrap up with a question from Dave. Are the minimalists happy or upset that Elon Musk bought Twitter? I don't care. I don't (laughs) care. My goodness. You're not allowed to not care, Ryan. You have to have a definitive opinion. Silence is violence. (laughs) DK, what are your thoughts on Elon Musk buying Twitter? I mean, just personally, I literally felt no emotion, positive or negative, about that decision. Like, my honest reaction was, oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. I know who Elon Musk is. He does a lot of interesting stuff and says a lot of interesting things. I have such a hard time knowing where he's coming from because he just strikes me as the kind of person that's playing games half the time with what he tweets. Like he's like massively Mm -hmm. trolling people. I have no idea what he's thinking and what's going on. Um, But like, I, I didn't leap into like, oh, this is a political victory for X or, 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 or or like, oh, this is a great danger to society. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about it. And I'm interested in seeing what 
this the social media space looks like a year from now, two years from now. Um, I, I think there is danger in just assuming that um, everybody who seems to be on your side in some kind of way is some great champion of freedom every time they do something like this. Look, for all I know, because I've been around and I've seen it happen before, two years from now, the Twitter experience could be as anti-freedom as people always thought it was. And Elon Musk is just supporting the status quo. That could be the reality. Or for all I know, 24 months, Twitter could be like, whoa, I'm so glad Elon bought it. But for me, I respect something that I had and I valued and I grew a lot from before I ever experienced any pressure to be a thought leader. And that is, I respect the space of spending a lot of time observing and meditating and contemplating before the world knows what's going on in my heart and mind. So I'll be happy to let you know what I think about Twitter, you know, after a couple of years of observation and experience and what Mm -hmm. I think the difference is between Elon Musk. But right now, I, I literally feel no emotion about it. And I haven't even taken the time to read what anybody else has to say. Like, I literally couldn't tell you what anybody else thinks about it other than like, there's just a predictable political reaction of a lot of people feeling like, oh, this is bad. A lot of people feeling like, oh, this is mm-hmm. good. But I haven't even listened to a single podcast or read a single article on it. And well, I won't. The topic that comes up with this is censorship yeah, and freedom of speech. And it's funny because I am all about freedom of speech. And I love that First Amendment, man. Yeah. I love that we can say anything we want without any repercussions. But there are a lot of people who I want to shut the hell up. So me having, if I had that power, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. There are certain people I would shut the hell up. You, you would just like delete the account. Oh, yeah. I'd be like, like, no, sorry, this is a private business. I do whatever I want. You're not welcome here. Bye. Yeah. yeah. So so it's like, it's funny, but I, but I can recognize how th- that's hypocritical. And, you know, with Elon Musk, like, yeah, like there are certain people that he's probably not going to, you know, ban from Twitter. Um, like Alex Jones is a great example. I think that, you know, like, I don't want to hear what he has to say. In fact, I think his, his lies and his, the pedestal that he's on has real life consequences and those real life consequences affect people in a negative way. Um, so yeah, like I would shut him up, but I also see that that's counterintuitive to freedom of speech. So, I mean, I, I don't know what else to say, except like, we're all hypocrites in some way and I can see it in myself. I don't really know how to deal with it. Um, but, you know, I recognize the fact that, like, that's one of the ways that I'm very hypocritical. Well, well, well there is the the all important private public distinction, right? Mm-hmm. On a on a private platform. So, like, if you take, like, the purely voluntarist or a libertarian position on freedom of speech, you could say, hey, in your store, in your home mm-hmm. or on your platform where you are the owner, you get to set the rules no matter how silly and superficial they may be. Sure. And so if you want to say, hey, to come into my restaurant, you got to have a shirt on or mm-hmm. shoes or you're not allowed to swear or even crack jokes or talk about basketball. Mm-hmm. That's your right to say yeah. in my domain that I own, these are the rules and you're free to not come on my domain. You're free to go give your money and time and energy to a competitor. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's hypocritical to say, hey, if I owned a restaurant or if I owned a platform, I would only allow certain people to set up an account, whatever. It yeah. would make you unpopular. It would make you subject to criticism. But that's all part of the fair game of free speech. Free mm. speech doesn't mean you are 
immune from disagreement and social ostracization. It just means no one with the threat of coercion, no central institution Mm. with the threat of coercion has the power to find you or lock you up for expressing your views. So I I don't think there's any inherent hypocrisy with that. Mm. But, you know, what I would say is that, you know, I I think about quoting C.S. Lewis again, that he says, it may be true that some men deserve to be slaves, but no one amongst us, no one among us deserves to be a master. And whenever I think about like controlling speech and censorship, I, I always think to myself, certainly there are people that are worthy to be censored, but who among us is worthy to be the censor? Mm. And I, I don't think there's anybody out there that's noble enough, trustworthy enough, righteous yeah. enough, or consistent enough to be a worthy censor of ideas. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a big champion of saying, let all the crazy people talk because I trust humanity's ability to think critically about what they're going to believe more than I trust some central institution's ability to say, no, 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 we are the truth detectors. Uh, We're going to think critically for you by not allowing you to have access to these books or podcasts. We know what's best for you. We're going to protect you from being exposed to these Mm -hmm. lies. Oh, yes. And who is it that gets to define lies? Why us, the trustworthy institution. Mm -hmm. Imagine that being abused. Inconceivable, right? Mm. All you got to do It's just imagine that president that you didn't like four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago, 16 years ago. Trust me, you ain't got to go no further back than that. Imagine what that power looks like in that person's hand. Mm. I'll tell you this. (laughs) I think that free speech is not self-evident, right? And it's not a, the right itself is not self-evident. It is also a a construct we've come up with. Yeah. And, And so what I will say is, you know, there's certain neighborhoods in America right now where you don't have free speech. You know, all oh, of yeah. your speech has consequences. You don't have to go somewhere far away. You can go to the neighborhood I grew up in or the trailer parks you grew up in, Ryan. Oh, yeah. And your speech had consequences. Real consequences, yeah. Uh, real life, immediate consequences, mm-hmm. right? And we all know, and I'm not encouraging anyone to go out and be violent. I'm say- simply saying this is what the reality of the world is is. I think the aspiration for free speech is something that I certainly admire. I like the idea that any of us can say anything, but the problem is when any of us can say anything all the time, it creates this giant trash heap. And so Elon Musk buying Twitter is like, well, it depends on what your perspective is. If you love Elon Musk, then it's like one spray of Febreze on a trash heap. If you hate Elon Musk, it's a fart on a trash heap. Either way, it's not going to change appreciably what's going on there. Because, yes, you can censor Alex Jones, Mm -hmm. right? But go back to the very beginning of this maximal episode, of this private episode, Ryan. What were we talking about? The Chinese farmer and Alan Watts. And what did Alan Watts say? You never know what will be the consequence Mm -hmm. of the misfortune. And you never know what will be the consequences of good fortune. Mm. So maybe you think this Elon Musk thing is great, but it could end up being very unfortunate for you. Or maybe you think it's terrible and the consequence ends up being something that seems amazing to you long term. And the truth is, you simply don't know right now, even if you're the biggest Elon fan even if you despise the man and wish he was never born, you want to heap all of these denigrating monikers onto him. Either way, you don't know. And by the way, Twitter is, it's the best trash heap of all the trash heaps, Mm. right? We have Facebook and, and Instagram and TikTok and 
I prefer Twitter to all of the other mediums, mm-hmm. even though it's the one, it, you know, I think only 5% of the minimalist followers are actually on Twitter. We share stuff there all the time. But when I look at the, when I look at the landscape, it's a lot of noise. It's a lot of trash. And I don't want to contribute garbage to that landscape. Mm. Now, maybe Elon comes in and he cleans up the trash heap. I don't know. But it, it seems it, more likely that it's not within his control because of everything that's being hurled in there. Is that even the expectation, though? Like, my, my context for this is that the talk on censorship, particularly with social media, really heated up at the time when Trump's accounts were, were suspended or deleted or inactivated or whatever. Because that that was a pretty unprecedented move in our lifetime. Never have we had a president or somebody like that notorious have have social media be like, you're off. We're, we're just turning your account off. We don't like what you're saying or we, we disagree. We think you're dangerous. We're turning your account off. That was the first time. And mm. there were a lot of people complaining, too, that they were losing followers, that their accounts were being suspended. And there were a lot of complaints from the more conservative leaning side that like, hey, they're like censoring our stuff. They're changing these algorithms and so on. So a lot of the people that just on the surface who were celebrating Elon Musk and free speech are saying like, all right, we're going to get back to a point where it's more of a free for all. And hey, you disagree with me. That's fine. But I don't have to worry about getting my account suspended for disagreeing with Joe Biden about something or something along those lines. I think that was the impression I got. Like there are certain topics, your position on mask mandates, your p- position on the vaccine, your position on Biden, certain topics where if you express a certain kind of opinion, your account might be suspended or deleted. And I think a lot of people are of certain views are excited because they feel like maybe Elon Musk is going to do less of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Maybe he will, maybe he won't. I haven't heard Elon Musk make a statement promising anybody that. So I mean, it'll be interesting to see how things unfold. He, he has made statements about it, but has he has he <clears throat> promised that he's going to change that? Yeah, yeah. But oh, you know, yeah. it's just interesting because all of those censorship, I I think they're actually I think it's good intent, you know. But what do they say? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. I mean, I think you know these platforms, the the, the powers that be, they think that they're preventing harm from uh, falling on people, and. Uh, that's where it gets tricky because it's like, is it preventing harm yeah. from falling on people or is it just censoring people? Because like there are certain things about COVID and masks that were getting censored a year ago. And then, you know, all of a sudden the CDC has new information and they're like, oh, our perspective has changed. And now these things that were getting censored a year ago, they're allowed to be on platforms because the CDC has said, it. OK, yeah, we agree with these things now. And I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, I don't know, there's all these outliers that it's, just, mm-hmm. it's hard. It's not black or white. That's really what I'm trying to say. Like, there's a lot of outliers that, uh, and a lot of nuance that um, I don't think there's any human on this planet that can sift through all the nuance and make the best decision that, that, uh, that leaves or, or that, that prevents harm from falling on anyone. Yeah. And, and yet, who do we trust to make sense of that nuance? Yeah. Like, it's OK to s- seek out curators. I go to museums and they mm-hmm. curate a museum, but I'm choosing for to go to that museum and, and experience that curation. Yes. When Twitter so- is not a curator. <laughs> right. And I think that's the difference. Right. If yeah. all of a sudden a art museum came to my house and started moving pictures around, I, I would be incensed by that. Right. Because yeah. now you're and I think it goes back to the sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. Because for me, when I see 
Alex Jones. I see him as a comedian. I don't know how people take him seriously. I think one of the reasons they do take him seriously, though, is as soon as he's censored, oh, it yeah. makes people think like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what do we do? We're censoring the truth, right? Yeah, I think the best way to expose someone like Alex Jones is what Andrew Schultz did, former podcast guest of ours, that he brought him on his podcast and let him just pontificate for two hours. And all of a sudden, you, I saw like, Oh, who would I would never take this seriously now. But if all this was censored, I'm going to it piques my curiosity. Hmm. I wonder what he mm. what he's saying. What are they hiding? Yeah, I, I think the best way to make a conspiracy theory sound or look credible is to censor it and, mm. and, and try to make the information inaccessible because the conspiracy theory is going to be based on an us against them mentality that says this is the stuff they don't want you to know. Every conspiracy theory is based on that presupposition. This is something they don't want you to know. And you validate that. You reinforce it and make people more curious about it. But, you know, I've always thought that um, conspiracy theories are a great invitation, a great opportunity to engage in philosophy. Because what a conspiracy theory essentially does is says, here's the mainstream story that you're told about something important. Mm -hmm. And here's a theory about how that's a lie and you're being deceived. And I think it's a great opportunity for people to accept the challenge of saying, okay, I totally am free to disagree with this conspiracy theory. Let's just make that the default, laughing at it as the default. Mm -hmm. But let's earn our right to laugh at bad ideas. Why do you think it's false? Because yeah. it's not just about what you believe. It's about how you hold that belief and why you hold that belief. And I think conspiracy theorists can challenge us in a healthy way to make us say, all right, I disagree with what he's saying. I accept the mainstream story, but but why? Why do I think that person's wrong? I, I always think that's a valuable enterprise, and I don't think human beings should be protected from it. I think human beings should be encouraged to do it. Um, that doesn't mean that you know, as parents, for instance, or as teachers, when we're dealing with minors, that we just let them watch whatever they want on TV. We, we want to protect them in the sense of teaching them the principles of critical thinking until they get to an age of like watching certain types of things or consuming certain types of content. But I'm, I'm actually a big fan of, of bringing it all into the light and saying, let's have public discussions about this controversial conspiratorial view, because if it's nonsense, bringing it out into the light will expose it. We don't have to run from it. We don't have to be afraid of it. Mm. But if there's some truth to it, perhaps we can learn because every generation has commonly accepted truths that were a conspiracy to previous generations. What a great place to wrap up. TK, man, I'm glad you spent some of this bonus time with us today, man. We're so grateful that, uh, well, that you made it. We're grateful to Michelle for, uh, for ushering you out here today. Yeah. And, uh, man, we're just thankful to have you. I want to acknowledge you and say that we, and on behalf of our audience, uh, we definitely appreciate you and we're grateful you're here. Well, I love y'all guys, man. Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate y'all. I always love my time with y'all. We're, we're heavy today, though. Like, oh. this was heavy. Yes. And I feel yeah. like we didn't get anywhere. <laughs> you don't feel like we got anywhere? <laughs> I, don't feel like I, got, I, got, I got somewhere with like a personal thing yeah. that I'm really glad I got there. I feel like we got everywhere. Yeah. We solved all the problems. <laughs> yeah. And we gave them all the answers. Yeah. Well, until next time, love people and use things. Because the opposite never works. Thanks, patrons. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing 
everything that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it 